Hello and welcome to the Bond Revisited podcast with me, Tom. And me, Joe. The podcast where we rewatch the Bond films one by one, discuss them, and then rank them alongside the other Bond films to build our own definitive list for the Bond franchise. You are listening to episode 19, where we'll be revisiting the film The World Is Not Enough. So after, like, GoldenEye being that reinvention and being more grounded, and then Tomorrow Never Dies being that surprisingly wacky film, we might have said this last week, but it really did feel like we could have got anything for this film. <laughs> like, anything could have happened. Yeah, yeah, and I think, actually, this film is quite different. Um especially compared to GoldenEye, but it's even quite different to Tomorrow Never Dies. Isn't it? They didn't yes. quite follow the exact same pattern that they, they went down with that. Uh, not to say that it's any you know any better, per se. I mean, I really like uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, as we discussed last time. Oh, Carver. But, um, <laughs> delicious. Yeah, uh, delicious. But um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's still got some kind of different themes going on and it tries some different things. Well, it's like with Piers Brosnan, we got both sides of the scales, right? Like we've got one side of the scale goldeneye one side of the scale tomorrow never dies so it's like it was never going to be more in one of those directions than goldeneye tomorrow never dies it's just not possible so Mm. it had to like settle in between where those two exist and my initial reaction is that it probably ended up like right in the middle (laughs) like it didn't really commit to either side Uh, but it's like it's really interesting that we have a set of bond films play out this way where we have a new bond and he kind of like shows off both ends of the spectrum for the bond franchise so now it's like well where do you go from there yeah the thing with pierce brosnan looking back now having watched these films again and knowing that we're gonna end up with die another day next are we he kind of oh yes it's coming oh. mm. um that that tsunami wave is coming towards us <laughs> no stopping it's but, real um, it's a real wave that's the problem real. <laughs> uh, but it made me realise that Pierce Brosnan didn't really get like a kind of he didn't get one type of film that he was in. I think all of his films are very different to each other. Yes, and when you look at the other actors, you do see a trend. Yeah, it's like even if they do suddenly shift, which is what happened with like Roger Moore in The Spy You Love Me, right? Like there was still a trend. Sean Connery, obviously, there was a trend. Roger Moore, there was a trend. Sorry, Timothy Dalton, you only had two films, no trend there. Mm. Uh, But this just did not follow that trajectory. And I think it goes back to the point we mentioned when we first started Pierce Brosnan. We are now in the era of, oh, we'll just hire whoever to direct. And it's interesting to see how much of a huge impact it actually had on these films. Well, speaking of that, who did direct this one? Uh, Michael Apted? Is that how you meant to say that? Oh, yeah, he's the one... Apted, yeah, he's the one that did the documentary that I remember watching of like the children as they grow up every seven years. So interesting that they chose him to do this big blockbuster Hollywood film. Well, I was going to save this for later, but my general theory with this guy is that they kind of probably just wanted a safe pair of hands for this one. You know, Mm. Tomorrow Never Dies did well, but it wasn't a big hit like GoldenEye. So they still had this momentum, but nothing crazy. So I, my theory is that they just wanted a safe pair of hands, an experienced director, not someone who's going to rock the boat and do something all that different, but someone who could just provide a, a solid Bond f- film that kind of ticks all the boxes that you would want from a, from a Bond film. Yeah, yeah. I, I think he, we definitely ended up with a very, a very safe Bond film, um, which is kind of actually not a good thing for me. But hey, I guess we'll get there. 
we'll get, get to dis- yeah discussing it. Yeah, so I do want to make one last point just before we go into the film itself, because um, this is a decently long one. But it, I'm only making the point now because it's about Tomorrow Never Dies as well. Is that the budgets of these films went a little bit crazy during this oh, yeah? era? It's something we discussed with the earlier Bond films, like looking at the early Roger, um, the early Sean Connery ones, and then the Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker, because you could really see that strong connection with the budget and what films got put out. But now. The same thing kind of happened. Things with the budgets kind of calmed down a bit. They were like, John, you can have a little bit of money. Just go and make a film. It's fine. Um, but when they came back with gold... So License to Kill... All right, let's get these numbers correct. All License right. to Kill was $32 million uh, to make. $32 million to make, yeah. Um, so that was 1989. And then we come back to GoldenEye, $60 million. It's a huge jump. That's a big jump already, yeah. Almost double. But it was the mid-90s... They wanted to go all in on a new Bond. This is what they do when they go all in. They up the budget. So it makes sense. Big budget jump. But then you go from GoldenEye to Tomorrow Never Dies. And that budget then becomes $110 million. <laughs> You know what? That is not surprising. That, it most almost of that money, doubled again. <laughs> that A significant chunk of that money probably came from sponsors, I would imagine. Oh, well, like, yeah. Know, BMW. A, a, yeah, advertisers in the film. Yeah. Absolutely. And we saw the same with Moonraker. Um, but yeah, and then we come to the world's not enough, and sadly it didn't double again, but it increased <laughs> to a hundred and thirty-five million dollars. How? So in ten years, the budget increased by nearly a hundred million in the nineties. <laughs> I that honestly, I did not even look at budgets. So it's never really been like as you say. We discussed it very early on in the in the podcast, but it's not really crossed my mind very much about money spent on these films but that is mind-boggling because i cannot see a hundred million more dollars spent on this film visually i really can't well those x-ray specs were real that's, <laughs> that's where most of it went ah uh, okay yeah that wasn't any cgi they actually just invented those all the r&d for that cost millions millions yeah. uh, but yeah so it's something where i agree we'll get into it with this film but it's something to really note about these like tomorrow never dies is probably somewhat explained due to how crazy of a budget that was and somehow the world is not enough had a higher budget now from what i can see of the top 10 grossing films of the year the world is not enough for 1999 had the highest budget out of all of them and do you want to know what the highest grossing film was of that year 1999 yeah um you know it you might be able to guess it when did The Mummy come out or something like The Mummy? Was that Well, earlier? The Mummy might came out that year, but it wasn't the number one. Oh, okay. What was it? Uh, <laughs> the Phantom Menace. Oh, of course. If there's any film that's going to, yeah. So The World Is Not Enough cost more to make than Star Wars Episode One: <laughs> The Phantom Menace. <laughs> oh, that's actually kind of sad. I wonder how much of it was just Pierce Brosnan's salary by this point. <laughs> yeah, it might have been, but it's... Obviously, we're extending the intro this one, but it's it's really important. Like, it explains the next film, Die Another Day, as well, because the budgets do not come down. But the world is not enough. Somehow, when adjusted for inflation, according to Wikipedia, this had the fourth highest budget ever when adjusted for inflation of all the Bond films. Wow. That just makes my opinion of having watched it, ready for this podcast, all the sadder. It doesn't help, does it? No, it doesn't help at all. But no, it's it's kind of crazy so let's go into let's get into it let's see where this money went yeah let's to be honest the opening sequence maybe is where most of it went but (laughs) 
Um, we we start, we get the circles, we get Bond walk across. It's the same walk as before, I believe, but we do get an updated Bond theme. Uh, I think it's updated. It was very in-your-face kind of 90s sound, so I somewhat assumed it was an updated version. It sounded different to me. I put in my notes that it sounded like there was some like little woodwind or something. There was a little extra little flair to it. Yeah. Yeah, it did sound similar to Tomorrow Never Dies, and just like the last film, we're, we're now in the David Arnold era of composers where he started last time and now he carries on until um, Skyfall, I believe. Um, but yeah, so we get that and a very classic kind of sound there. So yeah, we go to a shot of Bond straight away. The circles come out and we're straight onto Piers Brosnan's Bond, which as far as I'm aware has never happened before. Uh, no, I, I guess it's always been a sort of pre either to the story or, or, or maybe you don't actually see him straight away, do you? They often reveal him. Yeah, they usually like set way. the scene and then cut to him. For this one, it just straight up starts on like, yep, Bond, that's your guy. he's just crossing a road or something. It's just very, yeah. very humdrum, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, and also more shockingly, he's in glasses. He is in glasses, but that's... Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, all right. I was going to say why, but then, okay. <laughs> There's a reason he's in glasses. <laughs> there is a reason. For some reason, they, they put him in glasses straight away, so... We Not see the best looking glasses either, I've got to say. Oh, that all... Q's going to be on your case. Actually, glasses all round in this film aren't great, to be honest. <laughs> it's the one with the glasses. Yeah. If you take anything away from it, glass is a big theme. Yeah. So, yeah, so Bond is walking in the street. He's wearing these glasses, and we see he's in Spain. Uh, Bill, Bill Bow? I, hmm. <laughs> I don't, yeah, maybe uh, I shouldn't. Maybe Bill I shouldn't Bow. Try. Bill Bow, I think. Bill Bow, yeah. Yeah. I want to say Bilbo, but there's an A in there, so it ruins everything, <laughs> sadly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so he's in Spain, and then Bond is inside an office and is talking to a, a creepy man in a suit, of which Bond points out that he's a Swiss banker. And there's a load of guards in there as well, and there's a woman who's sitting on the side, and they're taking Bond's gun, uh, guns away. So Bond is pretending to be a man called Robert King, and... I th- he is pretending to be Robert King, right? Not a, an advisor to him. I really have no clue what's going on in this. Okay, cool. <laughs> this all right, good stuff. Don't, don't ask me. This, this, this all happens very quickly. <laughs> I won't wrap you in. Please don't. Uh, I've, I think he's pretending to be Robert King, but I could be wrong. But either way, he's representing Robert King and the guards. There's a lot of guards in there. They take his gun. Uh, he sits down with his glasses. Uh, a woman comes over and offer Bond a cigar, which he takes because, which I thought was quite interesting, but yeah, she offers everyone in the room a cigar, and the Swiss banker is saying, like, oh, we've recovered this money, and then, (laughs) I want to get this right, because it made me laugh, the woman comes over and is saying, no, no, I think the man says to Bond, would you like to check my figures? And then there's a sexy lady there. So he's like, I'm sure they're perfectly rounded. Oh, they then cut to a shot of the woman who just doesn't react at all. Like, no eye roll, no tee-hee, just a woman's face. I, I, don't, I don't know why they added that in there, but there was something so funny to me about having a corny Bond line and just cutting <laughs> to the person that it's about and her just having nothing, like, <laughs> like it didn't even happen. <laughs> a bit, yeah, yeah, kind of an anti, anti-reaction. I like that. I, I miss that, but I'll have to go back and have a look. 
yeah it's it's funny it's like it doesn't even relate to that scene um but yeah so bond then starts asking about an mi6 agent who was killed um, i can't remember the details and obviously i'm not going to get them from you joe um, no 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 they, they, they don't really matter that much but bond is asking about an mi6 agent he says i want to know who killed him uh, i don't care about this money or anything like that i just want to know who killed uh, an mi6 agent who was involved in all this and the Swiss banker is smoking the big cigar and the guard takes out his gun. So there's a bit of a back and forth and Bond is saying, I want to know who killed this MI6 agent. The guard points out, uh, points his gun at Bond. So Bond then activates his glasses and then that blows up Bond's gun that's on the table. It blows up the guns? Yeah. Oh. Was it not the gun? They should... They show a shot of the gun on the table. I assumed something came from the gun. I just, I mean, I've I've already confessed that a lot of this stuff just passed me by. I just assumed the glasses themselves exploded. But he's wearing the glasses, wasn't he? I thought he put them on the table. Oh, but then how did he activate them? I don't know. (laughs) I'm probably wrong. I'm probably wrong. It makes more sense it would be the glasses, although that seems very silly, doesn't it? Like having glasses on your eyes that can explode like that. (laughs) A pigeon lands on him and it's just like, boom, and he's gone. A double-taking pigeon lands. Oh, no. (laughs) No, God. I should have listened. Um, I assumed it was a remote control that he used with his glasses to blow up. I assumed the gun because it's on the table, but maybe it was the glasses. Oh. How is this confusing? I don't see. This is this is what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't like the scene in Bilbao. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So something blows up. Maybe the glasses. Maybe the gun. We'll never know. The, we don't see these set of glasses again. I don't think. Anyway. So uh, Bond blows something up, and that causes a commotion. That gives him an opportunity to knock out the guards. He then gets a gun and he points it at the Swiss banker and he's like, I want to know the name, want to know that name. And he starts counting. And I think the Swiss banker is saying like, okay, I'll tell you. And he is then killed by a knife. Someone throws a knife into his, I want to say his back, but it might be his neck or something like that. Uh, But he's killed by a knife. And the woman that was in there before runs away, runs off. So Bond locks the door to this office. He kind of locks himself in. And he sees the police swarming outside and there's a man who points a gun at Bond. Like one of the guards that he knocked out then gets up, points a gun at Bond. And then someone shoots at him from a window who actually thinking about it. I have no idea who even did that. What, who saves Bond? Yeah. It's later on where you learn it's Renard. Oh. Yeah. From like, I guess from a window somewhere, like a sniper. Yeah. Yeah, right. Oh, okay. All right, that's clicking now, but okay, that's weird. Uh, but yeah, so he's been saved by some mysterious assi- mysterious man uh, that you're not supposed to know yet. Um, so they start, like, all the police are now knocking on the door, trying to break it down. So Bond goes up to the window and goes up to the blind and gets this, like, white rope. And he ties the rope into one of the knocked-out goons, one of the guards. He ties it to his belt He then picks up the briefcase, which is the one that has all the money, because this deal was all about the Swiss banker giving Bond all this money. So he takes that briefcase, he smashes the window, and then he jumps out the window while he's been tied to this other guy. And at this point, the Bond theme is in, uh, is playing. 
I was going to say full effect, but it's more like a guitar-focused Bond theme. We get quite a bit of that throughout mm. this film, where it's actually playing the guitar riff rather than the big horn sections, um, which sounds good. I quite like that uh, part of the song. So Bond drops out of the window, and he's kind of left hanging halfway because the man that he tied the rope to wakes up, sees what's happening, and then grabs onto the table. So I think the whole idea was that Bond was trying to reduce the impact of his fall by tying this to the man so he kind of gets stopped before he just lands on the concrete and hurts himself. So he's caught halfway, the man's grabbing onto a table leg. He then, the table leg eventually just breaks and that causes Bond to completely land and the guards break into the room and point the guns at the guy and we see Bond walking along a nearby bridge and that's, that's that. Well, that's part one. Yeah. So that's part one of, I guess, three parts to this opening sequence. Yeah. And and just as a, a bit of a background, so that was meant to be the whole thing. And then the director saw it in the, you know, in editing and thought, actually, that's kind of lame. So <laughs> we need something more. So then they pushed the next scene before the title sequence and made it this extra super long one. I don't really disagree with that. Yeah, not, I, I totally think it's the right idea because that first bit was just I, too much information and it wasn't really that exciting and kind of it was set in Bilbao, but it's like you saw one shot of is it the Guggenheim or whatever that fancy weird looking art gallery is. It didn't, it could have been anywhere, basically, is what I'm saying. It didn't, just because it was in Spain, didn't make it any more interesting. Yeah, it kind of connects to the rest of the film, but not, it doesn't really stand by itself at all. And usually these things end on an exciting, interesting moment, but this just didn't. It just yeah. ended up, and then Bond got away. I'm like, oh, good for Bond, I suppose. But if that then went into the title sequence, you'd be like, oh. Boo! <laughs> Boo! <laughs> Boo! So, yes, so, so we are starting the opening sequence. We're still in it, and we cut to MI6 headquarters down in London. And we see Bond counting the money from the briefcase, and... We see, yeah, so Bond then does kind of a very traditional almost Money Penny M scene where Bond walks into Money Penny's office, which is like the classic office. Well, the the Pierce Brosnan version of the classic office, it's still the same kind of setup we got in Goldeneye, but it's supposed to parallel the, the classic setup. So Bond goes in and gives her a cigar, the one that he got be- before, and she's all like, I know exactly where to put that and throws it in the bin. And then Bond says, oh, it's <laughs> that's just how it is with me and you, Money Penny. Close, but no cigar. He was definitely thinking of that on the way to, <laughs> back oh, to the office. It's so forced, but to me it comes <laughs> back around to being good again because of how forced it is. Yeah, I will say, we. I know we complimented M's office in GoldenEye, how they did a good job of modernising it and and giving it like some cool lighting and keeping it brown, like you know the old one, but kind of modern still. I think Money Penny got kind of the bum end of the deal here. I think her office looks really sad. It looks, it looks really nineties. I know that's such a stupid, obvious thing to say, but whereas M's looks kind of classy, Money Penny's just looks like a sad office. Everything's beige, and just you know, you have got like the the blinds behind her and the big CRT computer on her desk. It just didn't. I think she did. She should have got a little bit more uh, loving. I think for that. It's a little bit drab. But it I think is. the main problem is that the size of it, where Marnie Penny's office was actually quite big, or at least it was shot in a way that made it feel big and she had space, but this one felt more like a 
broom closet. Yeah, she's <laughs> they just, just in a cubicle. <laughs> yeah, it was tiny. Like it didn't really feel like a individual office, just an extra room. Yeah, which is a bit sad. So M pulls or tells Bond to come in, and M is in there talking to Sir Robert King, so the man whose money this all is. And he says, "Thank you very much, Bond. You're amazing," and all that, and leaves. And M then kind of says that yeah that's one of my an old friend of mine we used to read law together in oxford which exactly what that means i don't know but it's a very like film phrase oh yeah we read law together in oxford it's like (laughs) of course you did (laughs) of course you did yeah so m says oh i'll get you a drink bond because m's quite an alcoholic in this uh series she's always with a a bourbon nearby uh this version of m (laughs) Yeah, it must be really tough for her later on in the film when she was kidnapped going cold turkey like that. Oh, she, she, that's why <laughs> she, she had shaking. the blanket. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a really sad story, really. Yeah, but she got better. Um, yeah, she overcame it. Yeah, so yeah, they're sitting down and having a drink and she's like, do you have any leads on that sniper, the one that saved you? He's like, no, not really. And then we get a little bit of mumbo jumbo plot here where there's like a Russian energy report. And it kind of is roughly talking about terrorists attacking some oil pipelines, the one that Robert King is building. So it comes up later, but it's kind of dropped in here quite awkwardly, where it's like, oh, yes, my Russian energy reports. I'm glad you noticed. Ah, those darn terrorists attacking that oil pipeline. (laughs) Well, anyway. Yeah. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers. Yeah. Let's have a drink. So at that moment when they're talking about this, Bond noticed some sort of fizzing, some sort of chemical reaction with his drink. And he stares at his fingers and this fizzing. And then he goes, King, the money. <laughs> and then just runs off. And we have M, I think, calls up to try and say, stop King, stop King. And Bond is running through MI6 screaming. It's like, like Get a madman. It sounds crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Not very sophisticated. And no. he goes through Q branch. And you see Q, who's like nearing a, like working on a boat, and Bond just runs through, going, Oh, get out of the way! (laughs) (laughs) And you get a nice little head shake from Q, just like, Oh, Bond. (laughs) I love this bit. I want want more of that. I want more of just Bond running through on my six corridors shouting. (laughs) Yeah, like a crazy person. (laughs) Like his left is something in the microwave, and he. (laughs) (laughs) He needs to get it. My popcorn, quickly! My popcorn! Q! <laughs> Tanner always steals it. you got to get it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, we then see King approaching all the money. So the money is in this room and it's all big piled up. And Bond's like, stop! No! <laughs> and at this moment, the money, or at least the little wrapper around one of the, the bundles of money, that catches a light when it comes near King's badge or pin. So Robert King's wearing this pin on his suit and some sort of reaction happens between the two and that blows it all up. So now there's just this giant hole in the wall of MI6 and there's this explosion and there's a little bit of fire going on. And I think you do get a shot of the building outside as well showing the the explosions. And it's always really interesting to see those shots because it's... It's what you pointed out before, where it's the same one as Skyfall. Yeah. But where Skyfall, I feel like it's really burned into my head. But when I see it here, I'm just like, wow, that's actually interesting. It's the same building. And they actually did show it off more than I remember. Mm. Yeah. 
And why show it off? I mean, blow a hole in it. They do like to do that, don't they? Yeah. It happens a lot. Um, so, yeah. So Bond sees through the hole. There's a, a woman on the boat. I believe it's the same woman from before. The cigar woman. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Which, according to the Wikipedia page anyway, that is her name, Cigar Woman. So I'm correct this time. <laughs> My notes are right. <laughs> the name's Woman. Cigar, Cigar woman. Woman. <laughs> <laughs> It's got a real ring to it. It really has, yeah. But yeah, apparently they just didn't name this character. So that shows well. how important she is. Oh, well. Never mind. So yeah, so Bond sees her. She's on a boat in the Thames and she shoots a gun at Bond. So Bond hides for a little bit. So he then runs back, goes back to Q branch and jumps in the little boat that Q was working on. And Q's like, stop, it's not finished yet. But Bond in this little, the Q boat, I believe it's called, he he shoots out of the building and lands onto the river uh, to go into pursuit of the, the cigar woman on the boat. So I have to say that was a really cool shot. As yeah. silly as this boat kind of looks, seeing it just shoot out onto the river like that, I'm like, that's cool. That's a good use of the Bond theme. I like yeah, that. honestly, this whole sequence is, is just great. It's just great. I love it all. Yeah, so now we're actually getting into like the proper action sequence of the opening <laughs> sequence. Um, so Bond is chasing the woman, and he's in a quite small boat. The Q-boat is this black, somewhat sleek, very late 90s-looking tech, and it's quite small. So it's kind of going really quick, and it's got like some jets behind it as well. It's like this really fiery jet launching it forward. And Bond is kind of going forward and trying to catch this woman and... Water is going everywhere, and like most of this scene is Bond just getting very wet. Just big splashes right to the face. I bet Pierce Brosnan loved that filming day. Yeah, especially the Thames, right? No one should have Thames water in their face. Oh, no. I'm surprised he didn't get sick. <laughs> That's why he's in the sling. It somehow affected his shoulder. They just yeah. rotate oh, into the film. That makes sense. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he's going on. But I think the idea is that when Q says the boat's not finished, he means that the big thing that's meant to go over the top is missing because he's meant to be protected. That would make sense. That's that how I sense. interpret it. I, like, when I watched this film again, I can't remember anyone saying that or talking about that, but I understood it that, yeah, there's meant to be a big load of plastic or something that would cover the front of the boat, which somewhat explains when he goes underwater later that's probably somewhat designed to do that because he's meant to be protected almost like a mini sub. Yeah, it feels like it's lacking a windshield, that's for sure. Yeah, some sort of windshield would be nice. Uh, yeah, so they're chasing each other. You get some aerial shots of the Thames and London because this is happening right in the middle of London and they go underneath a bridge and yeah, not not too much happens. They're just kind of chasing each other. The The cigar woman goes off to the side there's like this small opening between these buildings so the woman goes down there to try and get away Bond does some very quick turns because of how quick this boat is it can just like turn on a dime so it turns around and goes in and it's pretty fast and because she's gotten away a little bit she stops and shoots at Bond but Bond just kind of charges at her and she's on like a little turret on the back of the boat so he's shooting but at the last minute she jumps out the way and Bond just launches the boat at her boat spins it in the air and then uses that to smash the turret while landing on the boat uh, back on the river again 
So this causes the woman to get a grenade launcher out and start firing a Bond. Again, Bond gets very wet here. I put it quite a few times <laughs> yeah. in my notes. It's just, it's just it, constantly like wringing his hair out like with water, isn't it? You there's so many shots where it's just like, oh! <laughs> like <laughs> opening the eyes and the mouth to try and breathe. <laughs> it is like being on a theme park ride where you like you know go down and it get, water shoots everywhere. Yeah, it is that, but in a suit. So yeah, so they then go. Yeah, they keep going. They're both you now still chasing after each other, or Bond still chasing her, and yeah, she like fires a load of grenade launchers and i think that hits a boat that's in between them you get a scene where there's like a load of boats between them and she accidentally blows one of them up uh, bond is about to crash somehow i think he just misses just doesn't see where he's going and has to quickly turn around and we see upcoming uh there's a bridge i'm not sure if it's a famous london bridge i don't think it is i think it's quite a small one yeah i don't i don't recall the bridge yeah, it's not like London Bridge or any of the famous ones. I think it's quite a small one. So yeah, yeah. So they they see that this boat is being closed. So she just manages to get ahead. She's she's up ahead, so she speeds her forward, manages to get underneath just in time. But the bridge has like these two barriers quite low down. So even when it's fully closed, there's like no room to go underneath it. So Bond goes up to the bridge. And then I'm not too sure exactly how he does it. If he presses the button or does some kind of weird things with his jets, but he goes underwater, goes underneath the bridge. We then get a shot underwater of Bond adjusting his tie. And then he goes back up onto the other side of the bridge. Oh, hell yeah. It makes no sense, but I love it. No, it makes all the sense, Joe. Don't <laughs> okay. worry about it. Um, so the assassin then crashes into a load of barrels nearby, which explode. And that causes the way to be blocked, so Bond can no longer follow her. So Bond stops for a second. He looks at his GPS, because apparently the boat has GPS, and it suggests a different route. But the route it's suggesting is basically to go on land. So Bond disappears, and we get a very comedy moment here, where there's two like traffic officers clamping a car, and Bond goes past and splashes a load of water on them, and they're like, oh, bloody hell, what's all this then? Bloody hell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's what they actually say, but they're very British. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, take that, traffic people. Ugh. How dare you try and do your job? Yeah, I don't drive, so there's just no passion here. Yeah, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> uh, so Bond then like you goes on a ramp and goes onto the roads of London. So now he's on these streets, and because it's London, it's very small streets, very old ones, so... He is just using his jets on the boat to propel himself forward. So he's going through all these streets and the police show up and they start chasing Bond and he goes into like a fish market area and smashes through all these fish and then he smashes into a restaurant and just goes all the way through uh, and goes back onto the river and now he's caught up and we see the Millennium Dome in the background. It's very purposely shot so you can see that big old Millennium Dome uh, which, if you're not British or don't really know it, it's just a giant white dome, I guess. <laughs> That's not... It's a big dome built on the Thames. It was like the Millennium Project. It was every... I remember it was everywhere around that time, wasn't it? It was like so yeah. many things. It was all about uh, the exhibition that was going to be in it. And I think it's it's now like, is it the O2 Arena now? I yeah, they repurposed changed. it and like split it up into all these different sections. Yeah. Yeah, I do remember that as well, because just on a bit of a tangent is that this is actually the first film I remember coming out 
Like mm. I was too young for GoldenEye. I was, what would I have been? Five years old for Tomorrow Never Dies. But I remember The World Is Not Enough coming out. A, because they made an N64 game of it. I didn't play it, but I remember that. Uh, and B, this Millennium Dome. Because as you say, this was everywhere, this Millennium Dome here in the UK. And that meant because Bond was featuring the Millennium Dome, that was also everywhere. So I actually, yes. I don't think I went to see this in the cinema. Maybe I did, but I actually explicitly remember this coming out because I have, I have like uh, memories of me watching the news where they were like, Bond falling on the Millennium Dome. That's crazy. Rule Britannia. <laughs> God save the Queen. God now, save the Queen. I, I have similar memories. I think my memories are of, I'm pretty sure, like, Blue Peter done mm. some story about Bond and the Millennium Dome or something something on kids' TV. Um, or maybe not kid, quite, like, young kids' TV, but, like, TV anyway. And that's how I remember it. So I think I'm in the same boat as you. This is, I don't think I, I don't know if I went to go see the cinema. Probably not. But I do remember this coming out. Yes, yeah, same. This was a 12, and this was before 12A, so we probably wouldn't have been allowed to see yeah. it. But I do remember it coming out. There was a lot of hype about it. But anyway, so they've now arrived near the Millennium Dome. And let's just double check. And Bond arms... So she's still on her boat. So Bond arms and fires some torpedoes at her. And she turns and starts heading directly towards the Millennium Dome. And we get some pretty bad CGI here showing the torpedoes in the water where there's just kind of like two torpedo-shaped bumps on top of the water. <laughs> yeah, not great. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's very quick shot, but yeah, that looked quite bad. Um, so she parks up the boat and jumps off at the last second uh, and then it blows up. So Bond then launches... So And then also... There's a rainbow air balloon. Did I mention that? Maybe I didn't. <laughs> Just right where she stops, there's a hot air balloon, which is all rainbow colored. So she hijacks it with a gun. <laughs> it's my balloon. Get out of it. <laughs> uh, so Bond launches himself from the boat to the balloon as it's taking off and grabs onto the ropes. And she goes up in the air. Bond is hanging onto these ropes as it's going over the Millennium Dome and we see two, again, bad CGI helicopters. Oh, I didn't even spot, like, if they were bad CGI. Ah, oh, you love your bad CGI, Joe. you got to go back. But I, I they were very mm. clearly fake. Really? I spot, yeah. There's definitely some later on in the film that I, I saw. But yeah, oh, okay, I have to go back and look at those. You have to go back. But yes, yeah, so I, some yeah. bad CGI helicopters show up. Uh, probably because they didn't want to fly over London. I'm sure there were some issues there. I don't know, but... Uh, Bond is saying, I, we can make a deal. We can make a deal. I can protect you. I can save you. Like, you tell me who you're working for. We'll make a deal. And yeah, she, he says, I can protect you. And she says, not from him. So shoots the gas tank of it, of the a hot air balloon. It explodes. This caused Bond to, to drop down. And he lands on the Millennium Dome and starts spinning down it. He starts like sliding down and spinning Eventually, he grabs onto a wire and hangs onto it, and that's your that's your opening sequence. So that's Ooh. the longest one we've ever had, and I don't think it's been topped. I can't think what would have topped it. I don't maybe, think so. Maybe yeah. No Time to Die, but I don't quite remember. But yeah, very long opening sequence, and I'm overall going to say it was a good time. Like... As we already said, the Spain sequence is a little bit weak. It's mostly there to set up the plot, but not very interesting. But yeah, I do like the plot stuff that's in here. And I think 
the thing you take away from this opening sequence is the boat chase on the Thames. And I thought that was really cool. <laughs> it was oh, really yeah. exciting. It was a lot of the Bond theme, which again, got a little bit much in the last film, but I think it worked really well. And just seeing it all take place in London, this was just a really exciting, cool way to start the film. Yeah, I was thinking that because we don't... I was about to say, like, oh, it's really nice that we finally had a, a pre-tart sequence set in London. So I was trying to rack my brain. And a few eyes only was because they were flying oh, over that. Oh, what? But... <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think that should really count because it was terrible. No. Whereas this one, I think, actually shows off London quite well and shows off the Thames and obviously the Millennium Dome, which we just spoke about and how it was such a big deal in 1999. And yeah, I I really, th- I think this just hits the nostalgic spot for me. Um, it has all those elements of the Bond uh, pre-title sequence. But because I do remember it from when I was younger and I think the music is really, like the music is so memorable to me for this scene it's just something about like yeah memories from when i was younger um and also it's a boat chase it's nothing to do with planes finally (laughs) so we have a decent boat chase that's not like live and let die or something like that it's actually kind of fun and keeps things changing and bond driving through the streets and it's kind of silly but it's it's changing the means and yeah i really really like this in fact this might be one of my favorite parts of the whole film Oh, I would agree with that for sure. And it's probably the best boat chase because I think we said all those episodes again uh, ago that the boat chases have actually not been that good. (laughs) Yeah. It was nice to get a solid one. Yeah, definitely. But it just found a better balance than Tomorrow Never Dies. And I think the location is actually a huge part of it. Where I complained last time about how Tomorrow Never Dies just take place in some vague location and it makes it feel a little bit disconnected and generic. But I think tying this specifically to London really adds so much. It adds so much to it. Not just because it's London, although London does massively help, but I think just giving it a name. So it's like the same sort of bombastic type of stuff that happened in the last one. Just a few less explosions and shooting, which I think helps. So it's like the same star as the last one, but I think it's grounded in all the right ways to make it more impactful and more exciting by almost doing less to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. Do you think the whole hot air balloon thing is a kind of strange ending? I guess they needed Bond to fall. Um, but just kind of, what a terrible means of escape a hot air balloon really is. I guess she had no yeah, other options. Right? Where was she but, going? Like, I'll very slowly fly away. To Guildford. <laughs> I'll hide there. Yeah, yeah. no, I liked it though. It was a good I good guess they the needed film. the most dramatic over-the-top way of Bond entering his shoulder that they could think of. Yeah, and you know, tumbling down the dome, quite a good way, like hanging off, at the like that final shot of him hanging on the edge of it, pretty good. Yeah, that was good. But I also, I kind of alluded to this with my bad impression, her, like the, the moment where Bond's like, I can protect you, and she's like, not from him. I'm like, that's the lamest thing I've ever heard. Like the way she delivers the line is lame. And we already talked about it last time, about Elliot Carver, how like you need a really strong villain to sell this sort of idea of mysterious presence that they're so powerful that there's no way Bond could protect them. And as we find out later, not so much the case, I don't think. Yeah. Um, so this line, it's such a cliche, but if you're going to do a cliche, do it well. And it's a very minor thing, but it really bothered me that line. It was terrible. Oh, poor cigar lady. She just didn't have the script, did she? No, which you could argue is uh, true for a lot of the characters in this film, but... That's true. Anywho. 
Anywho, so yeah, uh, as Bond is hanging on to the cable of the dome, it sort of morphs into the pre-title, uh, the sorry, the title sequence, and kind of, I think it kind of turns into like him actually dropping down and his silhouette form, and then we get the the main sort of theme for these t- these titles is oil. A, part, a large portion of this film is all around oil pipelines and all that sort of stuff. So oil droplets um, and the sort of rainbow slick effect you get with oil is is all in here. I could go through all of it, but, you know, there's a lot of women uh, kind of dripping in oil, like as a, as a sort of silhouette of them dripping in oil. You have, like, yeah, the rainbow background. You have some explosions. You've got a sun at one point. A sun is just there, like, spinning around and some some strange, like, planets with screens on them. Not quite sure about what they are, but anywho. Um, <laughs> oil pumps, they're definitely going all in with the oil theme here. It's Daniel Kleinman once again, of course. Um, but I am going to say, after the last two, which I think have both been good, I think GoldenEye is still the, be- the better one out of all three so far, and Tomorrow Never Dies was okay, not as good, but still good. I think this actually might be the weakest one that we've seen so far in terms of these new reinvented styles for the title sequences. Mainly because I just think they kind of went a bit overboard with it with this one. Um, too much oil. Too much oil. Too many layers. Whoa. There's too many things going on, which is kind of crazy to say because like that's kind of the whole point is all these different things going on. But I don't know. I feel like they just kind of got all the effects they could on their computer and just loaded them all in, and it just kind of looked a bit ugly to me at times. Mm, I can see that. I the thing I really appreciated about it is that. They found a way to add in all this different color. Like, even though this is all about oil, which is like black and dark, they they found a way of adding in a ton of different color and variety. And I thought that was actually really cool and interesting to see. I think, I don't think you're particularly wrong with the, the two, a lot of stuff going on. A lot of that I think comes down to the oil effects because there's always some sort of oil effect on the screen. Mm. And then there's usually stuff on top of that. I think the problem I had with this one is that it doesn't really seem to go anywhere. And it got me thinking, it's like, well, did the other ones go anywhere? And it's like, well, no, not really. But I felt like they did enough to give some sort of feeling of progression as the song, you know, goes through its beats and as this goes through the beat. To me, this got a little bit repetitive because it just felt like the same imagery over and over again. And I kind of hold this one to a higher standard because of the standard set by the last two films. I was kind of expecting it to go somewhere and it just kind of doesn't. And then that's it. It was just a load of oil. It's like, it's cool looking oil and I like the colors, but I was kind of waiting for it to kind of take that extra step to make it something a bit more uh, interesting. Yeah, I thought when it was, it has all the shots of the, the big oil pumps, you know, you'd see on a like a desert valley in America, those big pumps that go back and forth. I thought, oh, this, this is quite, you know, this might go somewhere because it kind of reminded me of the statues in GoldenEye. So I thought maybe they're going to do something with pipes as well. Hey, they could even have done <laughs> like the Windows screensaver, like with the pipes. I don't know, something stupid. But um, yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I, that's a throwback. You're getting, <laughs> yeah. You're getting real nostalgic with this. Yeah, this is the 90s. It's just on the edge of it. Um, but no, I, I think it, it's still far better than the lights we've seen in some of the Roger Moore films and and that era but i think uh it's the weakest one of of pierce brosnan's for me so far yeah i can see that i might take this over tomorrow never dies but it's it's pretty close 
I wasn't into circuit board <laughs> lady. So, oh, circuit board lady, yeah. <laughs> Love her. Okay. Um, the song that's played is The World Is Not Enough by the band Garbage. And for me, this is... I really like this song. It's, it's kind of... Um, I don't even know how you would describe it as a genre. Do you, would you have any ideas? Bond rock. <laughs> Bond rock, yeah. It, to, but the thing to me is like it, it sounds... This is one of those songs that I think you can quite easily listen to outside of a Bond film. It doesn't have those like glaring horns and Bassy-esque stuff. It's actually just a good song. Yes, I agree. Like To me, this is almost like... Am I going to say this? I think I'm going to say it. I think this is the ultimate Bond theme. The ultimate Bond theme. I wouldn't say it's my favorite just due to like when it comes to music, things are so subjective, right? And when you've got so many different genres out there, like you are Duran Duran all the way to Chris Cornell, like there's so many different genres that like saying this is my favorite, I wouldn't say, I couldn't say that. But I feel like this does the best job of kind of presenting a song and summing up everything that makes Bond, Bond. Where, as you say, it's not as super in your face and big as Goldfinger, but it still has that very distinct Bond sound and it's all just very polished with good variety and it's slow Mm. when it should be slow and then it gets big when it wants to be big. And to me, that just makes it fantastic. It's just, it's the one that really took that idea of let's take the older Bond themes and update it to make something that sounds super Bond, but also be this kind of slick, modern, well, rock song. And I think it comes together incredibly well. And this is what probably Tomorrow Never Dies really wanted to be, but it just isn't at all. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And I think you can even tell that there was more, uh, well, more time for sure, more money, more passion perhaps put into this song based on its music video alone. It has a really good music video that actually links quite, I mean, it doesn't link to the film like for like, but it has its own little story. And it's, you can just tell that when they put the effort into the music video for it, then there was definitely a lot of love put into it overall. And it definitely shows. Yeah. Like similar to Cheryl Crow, they did pick someone who was a known name. Now you might be thinking, Tom, what the hell are you talking about? How is garbage? a known name (laughs) but this was like the late 90s where this sort of kind of female-led kind of i guess alt rock sort of band was doing quite well and garbage was a pretty big band not the biggest band but they were successful so i think they were probably picked for that reason even if their type of music just fell off a cliff once we entered the 2000s but this was still them kind of chasing it but as you say they had a little bit more time and i think her vocal performance kind of matches a lot a lot better for what they were going for. I'm going to be totally honest with you. I could not name another garbage song. Oh, there are. Oh, I could. <laughs> you would recognize it. Like, would I recognize them? Okay. Yeah. They're, they're kind of like, I want to say the, the cardigans. Is that what they're called? Because whenever I think of garbage, I always think of that song. I think my favorite game, I think is what it's called. Okay. But that's not them. But they're quite similar to that. Ah, oh, Okay. Right. I know that's probably not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I need you to sing it right now. For, no, not really. No. Um, please don't. Okay, so <laughs> that's, that's the, sorry. <laughs> I don't know what, I don't know why I said that for. Um, <laughs> that's the title sequence. We, uh, we then cut to the film. We're then starting the film. And where do we start? Well, uh, there are bagpipes playing. So it's got to be Scotland. Uh, we're at a funeral. It's the funeral of uh, Sir Robert King, who we just saw die in the, title sequence 
And there's this kind of big queue outside of a church in Scotland, so a very important man. Um, and we see uh, lots of members of MI6 there because uh, M is there. She is greeting and consoling this young woman that a lot of people are, are talking to who's obviously very upset. And we see kind of further down the queue, uh, down the line, there's Money Penny, Bond and Robinson. He's back, that character. Hey. Also, uh, sorry, I made myself laugh a bit because when you say further down the queue, I just imagine Desmond standing there like, hello, fair <laughs> <laughs> <Head> this way. <laughs> oh, you just got to go further down the queue. Hello. This is a really long queue. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the last one. You got to get him in there. Whenever yeah. You oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, Bond, uh, Robinson is basically asking, she spots the woman um, who's talking to M and says, hey, who's that? Uh, and Bond says, it's Electra, it's King's daughter. And, of course, that's going to be the the eventual Bond... Well, I was going to say Bond girl. It's Bond girl slash Bond villain, I guess, of this film. Um, but we do see that Bond is in a sling. So, as you we were saying, you know, he, he got into a, an accident on the Millennium Dome, and he's now... He's hurt his shoulder, so he's in a sling. And at first, when I saw this, I thought, oh, that's good, that's, that's interesting. They actually kind of carried over the accident. I wonder how long that will last kind of being a bit cynical but actually it does remain part of the plot for quite some time like nearly like yeah pretty much all the way through which is quite interesting yeah it never goes away but i guess it makes more sense when you remember that the boat chase was not supposed to be in the opening sequence yeah because <laughs> normally there's such a detachment there that you just don't connect them like there is a bit of time passing but no there actually is no time passing between them bond kind of they go to the funeral probably somewhat quickly so bond is still just very much injured yeah no time to recover just yet although uh, quick question about that do you yeah. think he injured it when he was rolling down the dome or when he grabbed onto the wire to stop himself rolling oh well we need to ask the doctor <laughs> ah you did you did do it right um what write down her name yeah i started to and then I forgot. Ah, <laughs> Molly. I remember Molly, but I think she's got a stupid. She's got a stupid surname. Anyway, <laughs> she'll she'll turn up eventually. Get wrecked, Molly. Not not after that. Molly's stupid surname. Ah, <laughs> oh, I really don't. Anyway, so uh, after that little funeral scene, we cut to the MI6 headquarters, which are also in Scotland. They have some pretty nice offices up here. It's like this big castle-looking place. Um, which makes so it interesting that sorry joe so something that only just clicked with me like about two minutes ago yeah. is that the reason why they're in scotland is because the london headquarters blew up so now oh. they're using their scotland headquarters instead wow that's quite far away isn't it <laughs> yeah they're like forget this we're off to edinburgh or whatever this is yeah wow okay that does make sense because i did wonder why all of mi6 came up here seems like a bit of a security risk but yeah well it took ages because their hot air balloon got destroyed as well they normally <laughs> would have taken that well q would have rode them in it because he knows how to use them doesn't he all of the, oh, yeah, he does. All of the octopusy woman <laughs> I just imagine m in that hot balloon air balloon the big union jack <laughs> q's lowering it down he's like careful q <laughs> Oh, that would have been that would have been a good send off for Desmond in the film. Well, just have the air balloon just keep going up. M jumps out, <laughs> and the air balloon just keeps going, and they just wave. Bye, bye. <laughs> I'm off to retire. 
Um, but yeah, they're in this big uh, MI6 headquarters, uh, and it's kind of a different different location because uh, you know you're getting all these like big brick walls, stone walls, wood paneling, and uh, uh, what are they called statue uh, armor, armor. What are they called? It's not. It's just armor, isn't it? Like. Armor, armor statues, statues of armor. armor. I think that's statues right. of armor. Yeah, they're all yeah. around this place anyway. Uh, and anyway, inside uh, there's this large room, and Tanner's there, and he's giving a briefing about basically what just happened uh, that we saw with King and what happened to the money. And long story short, the banknotes were kind of treated with this substance, which turned that big wad of money into a big bomb, big fertilizer bomb. They do try and... to explain it. I think it's magnesium is what they say. Oh, okay. I guess yeah. you're meant to know that's explosive. I, I don't know. I guess so. He said bombs. So I was like, all right then. Uh, <laughs> and then one of the strips was replaced with a detonator in one of the banknotes. And uh, when King got close of his lapel pin, uh, his pin was actually switched with another one, which had a little transmitter, like a little activator thing in it. And that's what caused the bomb to explode. So he was basically sabotaged by switching this pin out. Um, so yeah, you wanted they're they're now keen to find out who would have been close enough to King to to do that, to do such a thing and, and switch that around. Because as Tanner is explaining all this, you do see M, she's sitting in the background and she's looking kind of a, a bit more distraught and a bit more affected than perhaps she usually would be with these sort of things. Um so it's clearly kind of getting to her because of how she knew uh King and the link that she has with his daughter that we soon find out. So she stands up and basically just uh, enforces that uh, they're going to find out who did this, who used MI6 in this way and bring them to justice. After that, some uh, dossiers are given around. Bond is in this room, by the way. Bond is here along with those other people. Uh, and all these people around him are given these dossiers, except for Bond. How embarrassing. He's not given one. He's very angry at this. He kind of pulls Tanner aside and says, what's going on? And Tanner says that because of his injury, he's off of active duty until he's been signed off by uh, by the doctor, by the MI6 doctor. And uh, what do you know? Who's the doctor? It's a sexy female doctor. Oh, of course, yeah. They only hire those, don't they? they yeah, it's part of the job description. They, they shouldn't have, have be... let Bond handle the interview process. That <laughs> seems like they were asking for trouble there. They really were. It's like, well, what's your surname? No, not good enough. No, not an innuendo. No, sorry. Bond, you uh, can't ask for their chest size on their CVs. That's not... <laughs> It's not relevant. <laughs> what sort of underwear do you wear? Uh, <laughs> I've got the glasses, don't worry. <laughs> oh, actually, yeah, I'm, I'm covered, it's fine. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we cut to uh, the doctor in this like weird castle hospital room. It's like stone walls and then there's also just x-ray things on the wall. It's very, very strange. Uh, but Bond's lying down on one of the beds and she comes over and immediately starts kind of flirting and... Uh, Bond is saying how he needs to be cleared and she starts to undress and he starts to undress her and and then you know what ends up happening. So it it kind of like it it happens so quickly. It's like, have I put in the wrong disc? Have I started watching Thunderball? <laughs> is Bond back in that that like health resort with that that lady in there? It's just kind of like, wow. They they waste no time with this sort of thing. It definitely feels like because I remember back when looking up stuff about You Only Live Twice where Roald Dahl talks about writing that film 
And one of the things he said, like, well, there's a list of things it has to have. And one of them is like free Bond girls have to feature. Mm. So it almost feels like because the Bond women of this film are much heavily featured than other ones, it's almost like, well, we've got to get to free. So we'll just put a sexy woman in a lab coat and <laughs> Bond can, can sleep with her right away. So it's like, it almost feels like a pleasantry. And they do kind of treat it that way a little bit. Like it feels like... They are somewhat aware of it. It's almost like in Tomorrow Never Dies, where he's like in bed with that woman at the start in Oxford. Uh, yeah, so yeah. They do kind of do this with the Pierce Brosnan films, not Goldeneye so much because that's a very different type of film. But well, actually, they did with the woman in the car, didn't they? Oh God, and the Bollinger and the yeah, yeah, the yeah. Bollinger. Yeah. So <laughs> I guess this is just the format they need to have three. So like in Goldeneye, you had Bollinger woman on a top and Natalia. Tomorrow Never Dies, you had Oxford Woman, Paris, and Waylin. And now mm. this one, you have Doctor, and then Electra and uh, Doctor Jones. I looked up her name, by the way. I was, I just knew it was going to be something stupid. And what do you know? Her name is, her name is Molly. It's Molly Warmflash. <laughs> what? Um, Wait, what? <laughs> Molly Warmflash. Warmflash. Yeah. What does that mean? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Warmflash, we need you immediately. <laughs> Is there a Dr. Warmflash here? Warmflash. But, uh, right, anyway. <laughs> so uh, they they yeah, they yeah start kissing and undressing and she's in all the sexy lingerie. It cuts afterwards. Bond uh, comes out of the room. Um, he's now fully dressed, thankfully. Uh, he's walking down the hallway and he kind of does a bit of a double take and spots a bagpiper in one of the rooms because we are in Scotland, remember? And... This bagpiper is playing it, and then suddenly he kind of pulls it down and starts shooting it like a machine gun, and then it turns into a flamethrower on this dummy in the room, which, honestly, we're in Q- Q-Lab, obviously, but it seems like that's not a very smart idea when there's all this wood. <laughs> like There's wood on all of the walls around them. Oh, it's yeah, yeah, because this isn't like a underground building anymore, isn't it? It's, it looks like a castle, yeah. I almost say, like a converted historic castle. And Q's just in there messing around with flamethrowers. Yeah. If that burns down, I think we know the answer why. Uh, but yeah, so it is Q. Q's here. Uh, he's at a computer. He's very grumpy with Bond because of what he did to his fishing boat earlier on. He's destroyed his fishing boat because he was ready for retirement. And yeah, they are now finally addressing that that elephant in the room of, of Desmond's age. And I think, you know, the time has finally come. And they don't waste any time with this either because Q, uh, the idea like the idea of retiring that Q and, and passing it on to a new actor, passing the torch, because uh, he immediately triggers the snooker table to start opening up and this car rises up out of it. And it's obviously a BMW uh, for Bond's car in this film, but working on it is John Cleese. <laughs> He's yeah. kind of tinkering inside. Um who goes to greet Bond and his jacket's stuck in the door and is like immediately like, oh, this guy's stupid. Uh, Bond opens the door for him. And yeah, it's, it's, a. Uh, he's referred to as R by Bond. Cause if, if you're Q, does that make him R? Uh, and he is Q's successor who he has been training to uh, take his, take his place when he retires. And I do really like how when Bond does greet, R uh, and R says, uh, kind of, uh, and you are 
And Q goes, this is 007. And sort of yeah. like in astonishment, like you don't know who this is. I kind of, you, it gives the idea that in the background, Q must have been really, I don't know, telling stories or really bigging up Bond to R. So nice. Yeah. So yeah, uh, R introduces this new BMW and how stocked it is, how fully loaded uh, it should be. Q corrects him. Q really is like, he's quite a stern boss. He's like, like, you're not here to think, you're here to do what I tell you. It just lays into him straight away. Uh, But yeah, R then goes over and demonstrates this coat and starts to overly explain, you know, arm in this sleeve, arm in that sleeve, poppers, zip, and Q just loses his patience and says, I'll just pull the tag and this kind of big ball inflates over it and this big silver protective ball inflates over R and causes him to fall over and start fumbling in the background. So, yeah, he's there just as like a purely comedic character at the moment. Um, but the scene ends. Oh, the scene does end. I'm going to get sad now. So as R is fumbling on the floor, you get this final little moment between Bond and Q where, you know, Q's already said that he's planning on retiring. That was the whole fishing boat. So... Bond turns and says to him, you're not retiring anytime soon, are you? And there's this little pause, and Brosnan delivers the line just oh, so well. It's so perfect. It's kind of really understated way of actually being quite touching because you actually get a sense of genuine sadness that Kiwi is going to be going, and he really is going to miss him. Um, yeah, they... it's so, like you say, it's understated. It's Yeah. It's the fact that he's almost turning, but, like, he's making that effort to turn and double check like hey you're not you're not really retiring are you which is just never anything they ever considered because they was just they've worked together for years and they just kind of take it for granted so yeah you're right Piers like delivers it perfectly for what you would want out of these two because you don't want a big crying hugging scene do you exactly this is kind of what you want where like some some break away from the norm that makes this feel more weighty but something that makes sense for these two characters and who they are it really does make sense. I, it would have been harder for someone like Roger Moore to have said that, I feel like, because those two always... Because of the eyes. Because <laughs> of the eyes. <laughs> uh, but also because those two were always quite grumpy. But I think with this iteration, with Pierce Brosnan's Bond, they'd, they'd made them more friendly. They're always laughing together. In, in most of their scenes together, they're always sort of chuckling to each other at some point. So it, it worked really well. And Q replies, starting off with the classic, now pay attention, 007, and says how he's always tried to teach Bond two things. The first one I didn't really understand, which was never let them see you bleed. Uh, but Hell in the second, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. a, it's it's a, like an abnormally kind of like tough line coming from an old man. Um, but uh, the second one is to always have an escape plan. And as he says that, this little thing beeps, and he starts to lower in the ground, and and that's it. He lowers off screen, looking up to Bond. And that's that's the last time we see Desmond as as Q in the Bond oh. franchise. Yeah. So this is the only time I've ever put a sad face in my notes. It like is I sad. had to try and find the button for it. <laughs> 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 I was like, I would never really normally type with a, a colon or a bracket in my notes. I was like, oh, right, here we go. Oh, uh, it is sad, but I think they did it really well. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, there's two things here. There's the R stuff and the Q stuff. Mm. So I'll start with the Q stuff. The Q stuff is all perfect. Where again he comes in and it's the classic scene and straight up like Q makes a joke as well where the bagpipes he's shooting them and using the flamethrower and Bond says something uh, so Q says oh pipe down Double <laughs> <laughs> so Q gets in on the jokes and the puns and 
yeah, just seeing him all grumpy, but again, come around towards the end. It's uh, and you see his boat all smashed up. It's why Q's all. Ha- it's like it's just perfect, um, and just having their back and forth and they put in the nice stuff they put in the classic lines and then they give this like nice little sad moment between the two before they go it's just as perfect as they could have done it um the thing that's really sad about all this and i i think i might have known this back in the day but i was reading about this film beforehand uh desmond didn't just die of a disease or something like he was you know he was older but he Mm. died in a car crash yeah yeah there was a head-on collision with somebody else and that killed him so actually in terms of the suddenness of his death it wasn't like oh he was unwell and he passed away due to his age it's like no something quite like an accident happened so it makes it really sad again i i I wasn't too sure if i was even going to mention it but i think it's quite a interesting detail about all this but that's part of what makes this extra kind of sad and depressing that this character well also quite good as well because this character was able to step away on his own terms yeah. It's just then quite tragic that he was killed shortly afterwards. So it's like it's it's almost I don't want to say the word poetic, but it almost worked out in this really weird, twisted way that they set this up like this. But it's it's ah oh, it's it's perfect for like the wrong reasons, which mm. makes me sad. Yeah, I think. But yeah, by this point they they wouldn't have had him in Die Another Day anyway. So it's yeah, it is good that they did this scene now. But you're right. Like I think to most people, they would have looked at him and just thought, "Oh, he's old, so that he must have died before the next film was." Or like the reason why he wasn't in anything, like you know, not even like I don't know, in some Bond TV stuff or or whatever. But but no, no, it is actually really quite sad. Yeah, so I'm glad they at least gave him like the proper send off he deserves. Um, it, yeah, it worked really well. Now let's flip the coin. R, I don't like R in the slightest. I think no. he's terrible. Um, mm. so the whole point is that in the next film he kind of takes over as Cuba as you say they make him pure comedy and I don't really get why they did that I almost would have preferred if R wasn't in this scene at all and we got just Q and then Q says he's retiring and then R just shows up in the next one maybe that would be a little bit more weird but there's such this big focus on R being this silly guy where yeah he's got his coat stuck in the door and so like oh regular and bond has to let him go and then he has the jacket and it inflates and he makes noises because he's trapped inside the jacket and it's just like it's such a bad way to set up a new character it's such a bad way to introduce him and it's not that i dislike john cleese obviously monty python and all that stuff i I can't say i really have seen much of faulty towers or anything I, i don't really have any real attachment to john cleese but obviously he's a part of some classic comedy and stuff that has definitely made me laugh but I guess they were trying to make him a comedy character because he's a comedic, because he's a comedian, and it just comes off so lame. And the only thing that really saves it is Q just putting him down and just telling him off. <laughs> yeah, like that's yeah. the only thing that saves it. But if you were genuinely trying to set up R to be the Q in the next one, I think they did a terrible job. Well, it's just it. I wonder why they went with the idea of making it exactly the same character. I guess it's because they wanted to play it safe. But it doesn't really make that much sense as to why R would be so grumpy with Bond right from the get-go. They don't know each other. I mean, sure, he's heard of Bond's exploits, but it's not like he's been the one breaking all of his gadgets and stuff. It's just, it seems like such a... It seems so ham-fisted to have, right, we need another Q, and it needs to be, oh, don't touch that, oh, don't do this, Bond, and, and so, well, 
acts exactly the same way. It just looks really forced and kind of fake. Yeah, and I think having John Cleese doesn't help. Because I felt like you would bring someone like that on to bring their own distinct personality to make it more unique. And then as you say, they just make him another Q. And it's like, oh, well, that's not very interesting. Like, you're not going to be as good as Desmond's. So why are you trying to do the same thing? And it's just because it's John Cleese and is so famous and stuff that I almost would have preferred a bit more of a no-name if you're going to go down this route to try and reinvent it. But it's it, it's very confused. I don't think they had a real plan for it. I think they just was like, well, John Cleese is a famous comedian who said yes, so shove him in there, put some really weak jokes about, oh, my my, my coat's stuck in the car door, <laughs> crumbs, mm. and called it a day. They just didn't really have a, a proper plan for it. It was just a big name for the sake of a big name. Yeah, I think you're right. So with this, um, with with Q sadly uh, sinking into the floor, we then cut to Bond on a little PC. Uh, so he's still in MI6 headquarters and he's watching about King and looking things up about King and he's watching these like old news videos and he finds out that Electra, the daughter of King who was at the funeral, was actually captured at some point. And there's a lot of footage of her where she has been captured and... There's one particular video he watches where she's like in a blanket and she seems very kind of in a in a rough place and she's talking about or she's giving some sort of interview um, about what was happening and there's like a tear that comes down her face so Bond presses the pause button and like touches the tear on the screen which was like mm. I mean this is supposed to set up this character later on but oof. now that I'm talking about this scene again that's so dumb. <laughs> yeah that's so dumb but uh bond sees that the ransom for electra was five million dollars and it's quite funny because they have to really spell it out for the audience so there's like a picture of her which is like a an old-fashioned one like a polaroid picture and it says five millions on the bottom but to really home it in he like hmm and then like <laughs> cuts it out and then drags it across the screen and just looks at it and like Hmm. Zooms in. It's like, oh, five million dollars. Go okay. in on that. What does that mean? <laughs> How many zeros? Yeah, let me count those. Q. Oh, oh, oh. wait. <laughs> oh. Um, but yeah. So yeah. So then he he then looks at the. So there was like a receipt, I think, or something like that from the Swiss banker that he got, which said how much money that Robert King had. So he looks at that and sees it's like three point uh three million pounds. And he's like, wait a minute. <laughs> so, <laughs> so for me, I don't know. Maybe I'm just full of it, but to me I instantly clicked that oh, that's the same amount as five million. Um but I guess again they really want to spell it out. So Bond has to like bring up a currency converter, and then you see him type it in the three million pounds. And then he hits enter, and then it comes to five million dollars. And then he looks at it again. It's like, huh, because <laughs> it's the same amount. <laughs> I Ooh. I needed that. All right, I'm the <laughs> I'm your average Joe cinema goer. All right, literally. Okay. So I needed that because I guess like yeah, that would equal roughly five million. But I, I'd also just completely forgot about that whole three million stuff in Bilbao. So. I needed that spelled out for me very clearly, so I'm quite pleased the film did that. Okay, <laughs> gonna, all right, fair enough. Honest. I mean, I guess the alternative of not spelling it out and having it be missed like an octopusy, I guess that's worse than this, right? Yeah. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. 
So, yeah, so Bond and Al knows that it's the same amount of money. So the ransom that Electra was going for is the same amount that King had. Hmm. Hmm. So Bond wants to look into this more, so he tries to access Electra's file, and it very loudly is like, you need level one clearance required. Level one clearance required. So Bond storms off, and he enters a room where he sees M working with Tanner, and I think Charles is probably there, and a few other people, and he's like... Uh, Em, what's going on? Uh, and there's a, there's like a thing where, like, they go back and forth about like, have you made this personal? I think Bond asks M if they've made it personal, but I want to say maybe she asks it. Maybe that's later actually. Well, she says, uh, "What? Why are you getting involved?" And Bond says, "Well, I was the one who brought the money back." So she says, "Don't make it personal." Oh, I see. Bond okay, says, so oh, because of the implication that Bond feels guilty about. Yeah, it. I see. Okay, yeah, so. So yeah, so they go back and forth, and then Bond says, oh, M, you're the only one who could seal Electra's file, so maybe you're making it personal. Um, so M then sends everyone away outside of the room, and it's just Bond and M talking, and Bond asks what happened. So M kind of explains how when Electra was kidnapped, Robert King tried to go and save him himself, uh, himself. so wanted to pay the money to save her. But I think was unable to do this. So eventually asked M for help because they're old friends. Robert King asked M for help with this. And M says, well, you know our policy. We don't negotiate with terrorists. So she said, don't pay the ransom. And Bond then says that they use the girl as bait to get to like flesh out these uh, or flush out the terrorists. I don't quite get that. It's a running theme with this film about using someone or specifically Electra as bait and it never made any sense to me. It's like, how are you using her as bait? Well, by not paying off the the ransom. Yeah. What well, What's the bait? I guess, uh, yeah, I suppose bait is kind of the wrong word. I think that's the problem, right? It's not like yeah. they, were, they were happy. They sold her out in order to try and catch the terrorists is what really happened. But yeah, multiple times, time. yeah. yeah, exactly. But multiple times in this film, they're like the bait. I'm the bait. She's the bait. It's like no, not I guess, but not. It it just the phrasing of it really did not make sense to me. Uh, um, yeah, I think it made it more complicated than it needed to have been. Yes. Uh, so Bond then it says, "Oh, the briefcase money was the same amount as the ransom," and he says that that's a message, and that the terrorist that kidnapped Electro is back. Which I'm trying to figure out in my head how that makes any sense. Because I'm guessing that the terrorist stole that money from Robert King in the beginning. And that's the message? Yes. I okay. think so. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that that makes a bit more sense. Because I was trying to think about, like, so where did that money come from originally? But I guess Bond was getting re- recovering it from the Swiss banker. So I guess it got stolen. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I uh, no, I, I totally I feel I feel like what you're going through here, it is kind of a bit bit much. It is a bit much. So Yeah, so they're saying the terrorist is back and this is all the message. So they, we then go to a different room where we cut to a giant hologram head coming out of the ground. <laughs> and it's uh Renard. He does have a different name, Victor something, but he's he's, he's called Renard. So they're all like, he's a terrorist, he's worked in all these different places. He's worked in Russia, Korea, Iran, all these lots of places. And 
Em is saying how when Electra had been captured, she sent 009, I guess he got rid of the clown makeup uh, <laughs> for this one, um, um, to go and kill Renard. But during all of this, Electra actually escaped herself. Uh, she escaped from the captors. So 009 still caught up to Renard and shot him in the head. But he doesn't die. So at this moment, the doctor, wasn't a warm flash? Molly warm flash, and don't Molly you forget warm it. warm flash. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, don't, sorry, my bad. She's a doctor after all. She's a doctor, respect. damn it. Dr. Warm flash. So warm flash walks in. Um, and is saying how the bullet that 009 put in Renard's head didn't kill him, and it's still in there, but it is killing off his senses, and eventually the bullet is going to kill him, but each day that the bullet is going further and further into his head, he is losing more of his senses, so he's getting stronger, and this is then visualised with this giant hologram, because he's got this big head of his, and then they like go into it and show this bullet slowly going into the head. So, M says Renard is something about revenge. Is he's after his revenge, and Bond is saying how Renard had three enemies. I think one was Robert King. I don't know who the second one was. Uh, I know, right? But they specifically say Renard had three enemies. Oh, oh, uh, uh, M. I guess I think the plan was that it was going to explode with M, but they didn't kill her. Oh, okay, so the enemies, or the people that Renard wants revenge on is uh, Robert King, M, and the other person is Electra, because Electra is the one that got away. Uh, that's probably not appropriate phrasing for that, but she she escaped, uh, so Renard needs to, to go down. So Money Penny then gives Emma reports from the Doctor saying, ah, which says that Bond has been fully cleared for duty. And there's a couple of jabs here. I can't remember exactly what it said about kind of knowing they know what happened mm. that bond seduced the doctor and that's why they're cleared but m doesn't seem to care and it's like well i'm sending you to the caspian sea to go and protect electra go and go and save her so but bond is saying how we need to find out who switched the pin because i think it was said earlier in the film that whoever switched the pin was very close to king so there's actually someone very close who betrayed king so that's the person they're also trying to stop who they're assuming is working with renard and M caps us off by saying, remember Bond, shadows stay in front or behind, never on top. So her Ooh, way of saying, don't sleep with Electra, come on Bond. Don't pump her this time. Yeah, I've I've decided how much pumping is needed, okay? <laughs> no and pumping. Zero. Uh, I guess the first thing that stands out to me about all this is the giant Renard head. Yeah. Looks pretty stupid. Yeah, and how they sort of like Bond like pokes into it and it makes noises like digital noises, and it's just yeah. I mean, I like the idea of here's the villain, and we're gonna like get a look at him. It's something we've done before. I I want to say we've done it before, uh, where you see like some sort of picture of them. Maybe we haven't done it before. Maybe they do just cut to the villain instead. But but it's a different way of introducing the villain. I can appreciate them doing that and everyone looking at a picture of him. But this a this has aged very badly although even then i feel like at the time it probably didn't age well because this head is huge there's just no need for this head to be this big <laughs> it's real size that's why yeah and it really Imagine. doesn't help that this is taking place in the middle of a scottish castle so it's mm. not even like a high-tech lab it's just this old room with a giant renard head in the middle i i think the whole along with the 
big CGI head. I, the stuff that they're saying is also so sci-fi schlocky, like, oh, it's heading towards the medulla oblongata and it's going to slowly kill off all the senses. And it is a really stupid setup for a villain. I don't hate it. I hate where they eventually didn't go with it. But I think you're allowed to have this sort of kind of cheesy stuff in a Bond film. I don't mind that. But I think, yeah, I think just the way that it's presented, it's just such a such a, a contrast between this really serious setting and then it's just saying this silly things of this silly giant head. Yeah, I agree with you. You can have, the whole point in Bond is that you can have this silly stuff and it's just fun. But it's almost like they're trying to present it as legitimate where mm. you've got Judy Dench being like, hmm, interesting. Yeah, the, I can see the giant bullets going yes, into his the, head. Yeah, yes, the medulla oblongata. Yes, yes, I see. <laughs> it's it's like, like, imagine if at, at the beginning of The Spy Who Loved Me, that on that boat, like M and Bond are all standing around a giant jaw's head being like, interesting. So the, the, the metal, metal is inside <laughs> the jaw. Hmm. I see. You can make him bite really, really strong. I see. And the doctor, Dr. Warm. <laughs> she's <flash>. still there. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's somehow there. And it's just like, yeah, every day you get stronger. It's like, oh, I see. Interesting. <laughs> it's like, we don't need this, guys. It's it's somewhat similar to what they did with Zoran, where they kind of over-explained it. But now we have like an over-explanation in a very late 90s way that almost mm. makes it seem less legitimate, where if they just kind of dialed it back and just said, yeah, there's a bullet in his head, that means he can't feel anything. Got it. Cool. Um, but don't try and pretend like this is something very cool and sophisticated. Just, just have fun with it. Yeah, I think that's it. And actually, I think without the giant big 3D head, he would have seemed a little bit more... I don't know, he just doesn't look very menacing when it's just that bad CGI. You do eventually no. see him, and when you do see him, he does look pretty good, I suppose, and, but it's just not a great start to that villain. No. So Bond has been sent to go and protect Elektra, so we get these big old aerial shots of massive oil fields, and there's some decent aerial shots in the film. It's kind of sad that we don't talk that much about aerial shots when doing these episodes anymore, because... They were like my favourite bit, well not my favourite bit, but one of my favourite bits and we still get some decent ones but I'm kind of looking forward to a film that is kind of willing to go a little bit more all in with that stuff. I guess Goldeneye had some and this film has some but I do kind of miss that a little bit. Well, it's one of the things that I I kind of put, to be honest, at the end of watching this but I'll say it now because it sort of fits to what we're talking about is that I just think some of the locations most of the locations in this film don't end up being very visually interesting to me. And I think this, this, the start of this scene, I guess it's all right, but it is, it's all kind of a bit drab and it's just a little bit ugly to me. I, yeah, I can see that. I think drab is, is what I would define a lot of this as, I don't know, <laughs> yeah. maybe I'm being overly harsh, but no, no locations so far. I mean, Scotland is, is different, I suppose, but yeah, I don't know. None of them really stood out to me. Yeah. Outside of London. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. But yeah, so we are... Oh, well, we're going to have to double check this. I'm not too sure exactly where this is. It's it's somewhere. This is... I wrote this down. It's Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan, right. Yeah, the Caspian Sea, or near there. So yeah, so we see these massive oil fields. We also get the World Is Not Enough, the, the, the theme playing as part of the score, which was really nice to hear. You know, we talked about last time how Tomorrow Never Dies. It used the Surrender theme. And I think that was a bad choice looking back on it. Not because I think it lowered the score, but there is something really strong about hearing a theme 
at the beginning and then having that be reused and that did kind of get lost last time so this was actually really cool to see these aerial shots and bond driving and having the world is not enough theme or that melody play over the top that's oh, that's yeah. really nice to have again yeah yeah uh, yeah, so we see a lot of oil pumps, lots of oil pumping, and Bond is driving in his new BMW. So this is a, you know, I think, the third time we're going to see the BMW. So I think the last one, because it was a free film deal. And it's definitely a lot sleeker than the last one, but I guess we'll get into that later. But yeah, he's in his new sleek BMW, and he's driving through the woods suddenly. And he then sees a helicopter that has a big metal thing coming down from it and it has i think five or maybe six circular saws spinning really quick and they're soaring off some of the top of the trees so don't worry about that for now we'll come back to that oh that'll be back oh yeah, yeah. don't you worry we just needed a 20 second scene just so everyone be like oh that no don't worry they set that up it totally makes sense <laughs> yeah pretty much oh, so silly i just didn't buy it like why would you like doesn't matter <laughs> so <laughs> Uh, so Bond arrives at this like site in in the middle of the desert, so part of the oil pipeline site, I suppose. And a man comes up to him and says, "You need to leave." Uh, he's the head of security for Electra, so he's like, "You need to go." Bond says, "Don't worry, I'm from Universal Exports." <laughs> oh, as if yeah, for some reason it's perfectly yeah. fine. Yeah, that that's that's so it makes sense. So Bond is kind of allowed to stay, but there's lots of people all around and. We see in the distance, or somewhat nearby actually, a helicopter arrives. And lots of people are rushing towards the helicopter. They're all waving flags. Um, I'm assuming that the flags of the country that they're in. Um, and we see Electra get out. She steps out of the, the helicopter and a priest approaches Electra. I'm going to say priest. I don't really know too much about whatever religion this is <laughs> i think priest is uh, I, i'd go with priest yeah yeah very priest looking man big beard big bushy beard <laughs> yeah <laughs> so the priest comes out of the crowd of people waving flags approaches electra they then go up a hill bond starts following and they enter into this cave which is very much like a, a church that has been built into into the wall almost like into a cave um electra and the priest they speak in some type of language i'm not too sure which one but there's no subtitles for it bond is kind of watching at the edge of the cave seeing them talk and then the priest comes out of the cave of their conversation he announces something and everyone cheers and is like hooray way um so another man comes up to electra saying like what do you mean like what you just did is going to cost us millions and cost us a ton of time and electra is like i don't care um, so so this is all about the pipeline is trying to be built on a certain route and the locals are protesting it because it's going to destroy this very holy local church in this cave. So Electra has agreed to build the pipeline around it and not destroy the church. Um, so that's that's kind of what happened there. So Bond approaches Electra and says the name's Bond, James Bond, and they do a little bit of walking and talking Electra kind of explains how their family found the oil um, and the pipeline is going to guarantee their future. I miss some of these details because I really just don't think it's very interesting. It's not. It's totally not. It's, it's yeah. just a pipeline. It's trying to set this idea. that You're going to hear about the pipeline a lot. But Electra's family, the King family, or Sir Robert King, was building this pipeline using the oil that they own as part of their family and is going to pipe... Uh, build this pipeline to send it to the west 
So there's lots of trees being chopped down to clear way for the pipeline. So it's even more walking and talking between the two. And Electra asks Bond, have you ever lost a loved one? I think it comes from Bond saying about, sorry about your father, something like that. And Bond just flat out doesn't answer at all. Just gives mm. no response to that. Um, which I take uh, take it as this is another one of their cases where they kind of at least imply about Bond's dead wife. Um, yeah. But this time they don't say it, but it ties into the themes of the film they're trying to establish. So they kind of heavily imply it. Although I actually quite like the subtlety here of not actually explicitly say it, saying it, you know, like how in A License to Kill, Felix is like, oh, honey, his wife's super dead. Huh. Well, not doesn't laugh, but like <laughs> spells it out. Um, yeah, each film where they've done this, they've kind of lessened it more and more and more. So we're at this point now where you don't even need a, a specific line about it. Just, just the question is enough. Yes, and even if you don't know the history, you kind of get that implication that the answer is yes because he doesn't respond. Yeah. Although what psycho would say no? All my loved ones are okay. Like. Like, of, yeah, most people have. But, you know, so you get enough that the answer is yes. But if you know the franchise, then you know kind of what is being referenced, which is probably for the first time in this, uh, in the Piers Brosman era, probably. Um, I'm trying to think about the cringy beach scene in Goldeneye, but no, I don't think it is brought up there, is it? No. No, I guess so, yeah. Although someone might be thinking like, oh, maybe they're talking about Paris, that tragedy. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Pour one what out a, for Paris, everyone. A terrible tragedy. Yes, terrible. The doctor got her. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> doctor Kaufman, back. not not warm flash. Different doctor. <laughs> She's jealous. Yeah. So, Bond never called back, so she went to Paris. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, so yeah, so they go inside this like office room and. They're taking a look at the pipeline route. And this is when they kind of explain that there's there's three other competing pipelines going across the, the globe, all these different countries. And three of them are Russians, uh, because I think Bond is saying somebody wants to kill you. I think he says that at this point. Uh, so she's kind of making the point of like, look, I'm building this pipeline heading to the West, which is going a different route to the Russians' pipeline, and the Russians have three similar ones who want to stop her, so there's lots of people that want to kill me, so don't worry about it. Um, so at this point, Bond shows her Robert King's pin, the one that was destroyed. Um, like, I think he just asked her about it. I don't think really anything comes of it. And Electra then kind of says how like my family has relied on MI6 twice, so we're not going to make that same mistake again. Referencing her being captured and not being rescued because she had to rescue herself and also her dad being killed. So at this point, she then says, oh, I'm going to go and check the survey line. And Bond says, I want to come, of which I think they're like, no. But then he just is like, yeah, well, anyway. then, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't really like this scene, but I can't really say I hate it. It's just all a bit as you can probably get, just a bit dull. It's just dull. I find a lot of this film quite dull. Overly dull than it should be for a Bond film. And I don't know, it's something about this this scene in particular. It just feels really... Like, yeah, you've got the bit with the villagers and, and that's that's slightly interesting, I suppose, but but really not that much. 
And then you just have a, a ton of exposition about this bloody pipeline in this little office. It's just all really quite boring. I think that's the problem, right? Like they need this plot. It's not the most complicated one. And to be honest, I was roughly okay with following it, apart from maybe Spain. Although I guess we'll see if that holds true for the rest of the film. But they really... Like, it's almost like, okay, we know we have a complicated plot, so we need to shove it in people's faces. So the amount of time someone says, pipeline, 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 it's like, it's almost like a joke. Because I think ideally you would have just cut this whole scene and have Bond meet up with Electra, and then they go skiing, and that's how they kind of meet. I think that would have been a little bit nicer, but there's just so much plot they need to cover that... And they're trying to set up this whole thing with Bond and Electra and their kind of relationship, because it's like a core part of the film, but... I don't think this really does anything for it. It's so standard and basic and not very interesting and no real kind of chemistry, no real interesting stuff. It's just plot, just pure plot. And as you say, the visuals of this scene aren't very interesting either. So it's just a kind of forgettable scene. Yeah, but it's okay because we're, we're heading into a, a, a action scene, a chase scene next. Although, well... I'll get there. But yeah, um, so yeah, they're going to inspect the survey lines, as Electra said. So they're um, they're being flown in a helicopter over these snowy mountains. Definitely a change of uh, of colour anyway, going from the brown into this like snowy capped white mountains. Um, and because of the winds, the, the pilot helicopter can't land. So they jump out and the pilot flies off. So I guess that's setting up that they're on their own here. Um and as they start skiing down this this big mountain, uh, Electra's in front and, and Bond starts to sort of follow, chase behind her. And the soppy music swells as he's keeping up with her. And well, I say soppy, it's... I, I don't know, maybe I'm just hearing things, but there were certain sections of this music that's playing specifically this part that sounded like You Only Live Twice to me. Oh, did you, you Only Live Twice, interesting. Did you, I'm assuming you didn't catch that. No, because I just didn't like it. No, well, that's the thing. Is like this sounds really. I was like, this sounds a bit, a bit too lovey-dovey for them just skiing. Like, I guess it's more of that. Oh, there maybe Bond's falling for her sort of thing. But then I was like, oh, hang on. Do I hear? And I, I could have sworn I heard, I heard a bit. But I, I could just be making it up. It's I very possible. I would fully much expect them to add ref- like David Arnold would put references like that into his scores. I can't yeah. think of any off the top of my head, but that totally sounds like something he would do. Mm. Maybe but it's just very. I, I guess I. Yeah, I guess I wouldn't say I really actually hate the music, but it's the same thing as I said with Tomorrow Never Dies. And I do think this soundtrack is a lot stronger than the last film. I think he has found his feet a little bit more. But it's just so on the nose. Like, oh, it's like something from a Disney film where, like, the two people are falling (laughs) in love. It's just so, just too much. And, I mean, this scene is always going to be compared against On a Majesty's Secret Service. You know, Bond and the girls skiing. It's always going to be compared to that. And... I think that was probably a bad idea because it's just never going to quite uh, match that. And I think the music here kind of ties into that where it's like, it's just not as good. It's just not as interesting. You just haven't, it just doesn't make sense um, for it. But but we haven't got into the scene itself. But yeah, I would. I just got to say, again, I think most of the soundtrack is pretty solid, but this song in particular stood out as being very on the nose again, not great. And I hope by the next film, David Arnold kind of gets out of that habit of just very on the nose. Well, these are a man and a woman falling for each other while skiing. I know what I'll do. Just hear some very nice lovey-dovey music. I hope I hope that stops. 
There's Madonna on screen. Play some Madonna music. Oh, no. You've gone too far. <laughs> no, David, stop. David, come back. <laughs> anyway, uh, Electra and Bond, they, they, they stop skiing. They're kind of overlooking um, where this pipeline is going to be placed. And you see the kind of markers there for it. And she uh, she proclaims this as uh, her fam- family's legacy to the world. She's very proud, kind of getting, uh, you know, she's very, very uh, excited about all this sort of stuff. And as they're looking at this section, these strange hovercraft, snowmobile, parachute things start flying in. Mm-hmm. And they're later in the film referred to as parahawks. <laughs> right? They Which don't is even good look like hawks. What are you on about? Well, I had no clue that I was like, is this, are these a real thing? Surely not. And, and don't worry. They are made up for this film. I googled okay. Parahawk, and it was only the world is not enough that came up. Um, okay, that makes which sense, is good because they look so stupid. <laughs> they look so. Stu- I don't really dislike them, but you're right. Like later in the film, Bond talks about them saying we were attacked by Parahawks. I'm like, what? <laughs> Did you name them? Who told you that name? Bond's like, I know what I'll call them. Parahawks. Perfect. Yeah, they do. They do look a little bit impractical. So yeah, they're basically snowmobiles with like a big parachute attached to them. There you go, power hawk, I guess. Um, Perfect. And Bond sends Electra away to go take cover, and he tries to lead them into uh, the forest to try and like uh, get them to crash, I guess, into the trees. So um, they start dropping grenades down on him as they're flying above him, and they just look so. In these first bits where they're flying, still they look so clumsy, like they're just flopping all over the place (laughs) they don't look very menacing basically um they start shooting with machine guns um but yeah they're still kind of bumbling around in the sky i i can appreciate them i guess trying to come up with a new vehicle but uh could they not just maybe had snowmobiles in the first place i don't know because yeah some eventually do detach and just turn into land vehicles that chase after bond as well um he gets rid of one by like I think he like quickly turns away at the last second and it crashes into the mountain. Um, he might, I don't know. I, there's a few of them. I don't know how he gets rid of all of them, to be honest with you. Uh, there is one where he kind of gets it to, it's chasing him and he stops just at the edge of the cliff. And so it carries on flying over, over the edge. And you think, great, you know, he's got rid of that one. Uh, he's all happy, he's smiling at that. And then, oh no another parachute kind of comes out of it and it starts flying again and <laughs> it just comes back up. And I really do love this bit, mainly because of the reaction shot of Piers Brosnan. Aww. He looks so grumpy. You just get the shot of him like really snarling at the sight of this, like, damn. <laughs> That's what loses me a little bit though. I like the act, uh, the action of the thing coming off and then almost like its own sort of gadget, bringing back the parachute. But I really didn't like Piers Brosnan's like, it's no, so, I feel so like it needed top. to be a little bit more yeah, subtle because initially he's smiling like, yeah. And then yeah. he does that and he's like, oh, no, it's it's a bit, <laughs> I, I would have liked it if it was a bit more subtle. I think it would make for a great kind of meme. I, 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 how's that not been a meme yet? I'm going to make that into one somehow. I think it's a great reaction shot meme. I'll think of something. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, uh, so he's he hasn't dealt with that one. And as another one is coming to fly, like what, there's another one that's flying towards him. 
So what he does is he skis up a little bit. So he's above the one that just flew over the the cliff. Jump back down to Electra, or where she is roughly. And as he does, he rips a hole in the parachute of the one below. And what that does is causes it to lose control and perfectly collide with the other one that was heading towards him. So they both crash into each other and explode. You yeah. couldn't have... I mean, perfect. You really couldn't have planned that better, could you? That's what I would have done. Honestly, in that moment, you got to think fast. Of course that's going to work. So uh, Bond and Electra are kind of standing together with their skis and the explosion of those two Powerhawks uh, causes a sort of the snow to give way underneath them like a kind of mini avalanche and they start to get buried by all this snow but thankfully Bond's wearing the bubble inflatable silver thing that R was showing off earlier and at the last second before they're buried it inflates and protects them and they're inside it and Electra starts to have a sort of panic attack in in this bubble um kind of screaming and and losing control and bond calms her down kind of says you know you're safe don't worry don't worry and yeah they eventually dig their way out and they're pretty fine they're pretty much unscathed now the question i have for you tom oh so we know what's going to happen with electra right there's no point giving spoilers uh or hiding spoilers she is the villain in this film oh come on sorry sorry but then that now goes back nicely to this is, do you think all of this was a was a ruse? Oh, totally. 100%. Yeah. yeah. 100% a ruse. See, I think that works. Now, having watched that and you know what it's going to be, I think it works really well. Kind of gives us some added layer. I don't. Um. <laughs> oh, I like that. I don't know. It's, it's I mean, there, there's a massive discussion to be had about Electra, and I don't think I'm ready for that yet. Hmm. Because she's such a core part of the film, okay. Uh, so, so I'm going to sidestep that, sadly. Okay, but we'll get that. That's going to that's a big discussions. But the thing I will say is that that the most of this scene with the power hawks, as they're apparently called, it feels like it's very much a throwback to older Bond. Like this is something you know, the Spy Who Loved Me is the first one that comes to mind. Uh, but something like obviously on a Magic Secret Service as well. This feels like almost kind of and on a you know for your eyes only. This feels like this very very much wants to kind of belong in that camp, and it almost feels a little bit out of place in this film because of how old school and somewhat a little bit. Oh, I was going to say silly, but it's not quite as silly as it gets. But it feels like it wants to kind of fit in that the spy who loved me kind of tone, where there's kind of jokes and there's stuff going on. But these power holes are not cool in any stretch of the imagination but they're very like the guys driving them are all in black with like black helmets it's like almost very a little bit cartoony in that sense where they're just very like not characters at all they're just goons in these very city not even high tech like just like it's only something bond could get away with so i kind of like this idea of this kind of throwback to like 70s era of bond with the ski chase um what brings it down for me is the ending bit with the with the ball and stuff where we have to have her freaking out and bond in the in this big ball having to knife his way out it just it takes away a lot of what i think was interesting about the scene which was the throwback to more old school bond and trying to bring it back for this film okay yeah i hmm 
I'm going to say that I think this whole scene was pretty boring. Okay, <laughs> so, that's I can see that. I, I, I'm going to say that for a lot of this film. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think because there was less emphasis on kind of what Bond does here and more on just the bumbling of the Powerhawks. And as you said, they're not a cool thing in this scene. They don't they don't look very good. They don't really do anything very good. I guess, yeah, you have the one bit where it flies back up, but ugh. Uh, nothing really happens. That's what really, just nothing really happens. And so I think that's why I, I kind of, I, I, I go more towards this ending bit with the character uh, stuff with Electra more, just because I think the action is, is not up to scratch, to be honest with you. Well, it does kind of at least somewhat try and justify the scene. And I think as we go through this, you know, in terms of the budget, I don't think this is as over the top as Tomorrow Never Dies. But I think where potentially the big old budget comes in is just the amount of locations. Mm, Because this feels so out of nowhere where I think we've played this game before. I can't remember what film it was, where it's like list out all the locations we've already been to. Spain, London, Scotland, that desert, the Caspian Sea, the desert place, and now the mountains, which might be the same country. I would guess not, but it's a completely different location. So we've already gone through them all and we're going to go through a lot more. And this film is very much all about that. It doesn't feel quite like a whirlwind tour, but this like is so, oh, let's just bugger off from the plot, go do a ski chase and then come back. <laughs> yeah, it really is that, isn't it? Yeah. There's just no connection. Like, for you know, for your eyes only, that film takes place or the beginning of it in northern Italy so it's not just a ski chase. There's also the ice rink stuff. There's also them actually exploring the town full of snow. It's tied to that location. This is just nothing. Like you could have had this in any other Bond film and it would have worked as well as it did here, which is to say potentially not that much. Yeah. And, so and I, I do need to just mention for your uh, Honor Majesty Secret Service again. Okay. Like don't, don't, just don't try that guys. Just don't. <laughs> Like, don't try and recreate that. It's not going to happen. It's always going to be worse. And that is exactly what happened here. This is just worse. Like, if you're going to try and bring that back, I kind of do like how this feels like it's something from an older Bond film. That is kind of the charm to it for me. That saves it a little bit. But don't, just don't do that. The music is worse. The set piece is worse. The filming is worse. Everything's just worse. So if you're trying to, like, bring that back and try and connect... Oh, Electra and Bond are like Bond and Tracy. Like, nah, 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 nah. Just don't try it. Yeah, Michael. Listen to Tom. Yeah. What have you ever if done? You're, if you're still alive, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> after, after that, after this uh, skiing scene, we are at uh, Baku. So another location. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, is that back in Azerbaijan? I'm very bad at geography. Is that in Azerbaijan? I don't know. I just put cut to Baku and then I just put two question marks after it. (laughs) I think it might be. It's probably like the capital or something and I'm just very ignorant. Um, But yeah, we're back at Baku at uh, back at Baku uh, with um, Electra's villa house. Very fancy looking house. Um, And Bond is waiting at the bottom of these stairs along with the guy we saw earlier, uh, Davidoff. Davidoff is his name. And some other henchmen as well that we see a couple of times. And a doctor comes down the stairs and says that uh, she'll be fine. Uh, just a few bumps and scrapes. And that she wants to see Bond. Oh, sorry. She wants to see you, I think she just says. And Davidoff takes that as meaning him. He says, no, 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 not you, him. And it's actually Bond. So 
She invites Bond to go up the stairs. You get a little bit of a smug look as well from Bond. A bit of cocky Bond there. He's like, yeah, you know, out the way, Davidoff, uh, as he goes up. And in her bedroom, Electra is there and is asking who is who was that that just did all the Parahawk stuff? Who's trying to kill her? Uh, and Bond obviously can't say. He says he doesn't know, but he'll find out whoever it is. And Electra kind of gives a bit of a, a background or a bit of history to her kidnapping about how um, after it, she kind of, she lived in fear. She never wanted to leave the house and how she's now taken her a long time to overcome that. And <laughs> despite that, now says for Bond to stay with her and protect her, um, which Bond declines to do. And I don't know, you, you get, during this, this discussion between the two of them, you do get at one point Bond just kind of like almost stepping back a little bit and like squinting and really kind of trying to analyze what she's saying and what she's doing. And she, he's trying to figure her out because to be fair, she's saying quite a lot of just contradictory stuff in a way. Um, and as he goes to leave her bedroom, she does say like, oh, who's afraid now, Mr. Bond? And I, I don't really quite get what they're trying to go for in this scene, in all honesty. Like, is it still meant to be Bond starting to fall in love with her? Is it Bond beginning to sort of maybe very early planting the seeds of beginning to doubt some of the things she's saying? I, what did you get from this scene? I took it as the falling in love stuff just because of what happens later in the film. It's the oh. only thing that ties it together, whether it's supposed to be a sexy scene, but he's like, no, no, stay away. It's... It's that, some of what we saw with the last film with Paris, it's just going through those same motions again. Yeah, I was worried you were going to say that, because I kind of like, yeah, that was that was the obvious choice, but I really just didn't get that. I just think the dialogue here is all really kind of bloaty, and like everything's a sort of, everything's sort of like a question, or a very, uh, back, almost like a backhanded comment, or uh, has all these different, it's trying to get all these different layers behind it, but it just doesn't work for me. Well, this whole film kind of relies on Bond and Electra's relationship. And at this point in the film, I was kind of giving it the benefit of the doubt. Mm. I don't do that for the rest of the film, <laughs> but I was kind of willing to say, I, I think you're kind of right. It's, it's a little bit strange. I think they are trying to do a lot with subtext here. And it's it makes it very movie talk where everyone, people aren't just talking; they're just saying yeah, like lines. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Um, which doesn't help. But again, at this point, I was like, okay, well, I'll let it slide. We'll see where it goes. Unfortunately, it goes straight into a brick wall and explodes. But for the time <laughs> being, I was like, all right, well, we'll, we'll give it a pass for now. Hmm. Yeah, I guess at this point, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't there. And it's a shame because I do, we've said a little bit about Electra and we'll talk about a lot more at the end um, about, about her character arc. But I do like that we're getting these bits early on with her and Bond and we're seeing sort of one side of her here and we will eventually see another side of her. It's just, I'm not, I'm just not getting, yeah, that Bond is supposed to, if Bond is meant to be falling in love with her, I don't get that at all. If anything, he looks like he's kind of doubting her at points, but anyway. That's, that's besides the point. We'll, we'll talk about that later on. Yeah, lots to discuss there. But I, I was, you know, I do appreciate that they are spending time together. It just perhaps yes. 
for the sake of the the pacing of the plot, they have to set it up that Bond is falling for her now, just for the rest of the film to make sense. But really, like that's not no like again if we go back to automatic servers they spent more time together even if it was just a soppy montage of them going shopping um there was at least something there in a back and forth this is just Electra just being a bit all over the place and bond kind of just following her around and apparently that is meant to mean that bond is now falling for her but no not not quite yeah but after that after bond says he can't stay and he has to leave we then cut to a casino and it's another very classic looking casino i i haven't been to many casinos but i find it interesting how many of these in the bond films just look very similar well it's probably because they have the same stuff so they (laughs) but even like the walls and you know i feel like this looks very similar to the golden eye one which looked very similar to like the dr no one i feel like yeah so many of these visually are tied together but i would imagine casinos have a little bit more variety than this i guess so this one is very um very kind of light coloured, very cream. How would you how would you rank it, Joe? I know you're My, big into your casinos. I am. This is how not are you the worst. This one? It, I, I think it's it's. Was there one in Tomorrow Never Dies? No. No. I can't think when that would have been. It's okay. I think the thing that really detracts from this scene is not the not the casino itself. It's the glasses. <laughs> it's the All glasses. Right. <laughs> yeah. So. So Bond enters the casino and he's in the classic tux, you know, the bow tie. And he looks at a man, like a, a guard or something, like some sort of bodyguard, and he puts on a pair of sunglasses. Now, Q was wearing these sunglasses before. Um, so these didn't quite come out of nowhere. I don't know if Q really explains exactly what they do, but I think he did. He was at least wearing them because he looked very fashionable, very good. Um, but Bond puts on these sunglasses and they're X-ray specs. So he can see through the man's suit and he can see that he's got a load of guns on him. Uh, So we then get a load of first person shots. So it goes between Bond walking around the casino, wearing the glasses, and then we get first person shots of him looking at people. So he looks at the man in the suit, sees he has a load of guns. And then he looks at two lovely ladies and can just see they also have guns, but also sees them in, in their underwear. So he just walks around the casino looking through women's dresses. <laughs> so, oh, and then there's like one woman who's bending down to pick something up. So you just get a shot. Now you don't see it in first person, but mm. you just get a shot of Bond looking at her butt and being like, hmm. It's, it's so nice of Q to program these glasses to be uh, like PG friendly. Oh, <laughs> so it helps a ton. They're x-ray, but only up until the underwear. No yeah. more than that. I was thinking a bit about how they shot this. I probably shouldn't have been, but... I would guess that they actually had them walk around in their underwear with guns on them and then probably CGI'd in the clothes over the top. Oh, in the in the POV shots. Yeah. 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 Because I know they had a huge budget. <laughs> Did they? <laughs> Apparently, yeah. Someone was going on about it early. I don't know. Got a bit old, but... Um, yeah, so that, that's the only way it makes sense because you do see them, but they just have like a futuristic effect over the top. Like there's a the impression of their clothes over the top. So I'm assuming that's how they did it. But I feel like that is more interesting than what's actually happening on screen. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. It's just Bond perving over people. So he then goes <laughs> up to the bar and he sees another big man surrounded by women and he looks at him and her and all the, all the women around. And again, they all just have weapons. 
And Bond says, I want to see Valentin Sokoski. Which, if you remember from Goldeneye, it's the same character, the ex-KGB agent, who Bond saw in that film. So he asked for Valentin Sokoski. So he, like, demands to go. The man's like, no. But Bond's like, I want to go see him now. Demands it. So the big bodyguard guy, who's very tall and very big, goes over to Bond and... I don't quite understand what happens here. Bond, like, pulls him down towards the bar, pulls his tie up over his head a little bit on the bar, puts a knife in the tie to hold it in place, and then the guy's just, like, super choking as Bond has his... Because he also orders a a Falcon Martini shaken not stirred in this. Um, And then he just goes back and starts drinking his drink. But I don't really get what that move was with the tie. Clearly that guy just ties his ties too tight. Must be. <laughs> because all he does is yeah. grab the tie, but I don't quite see how he's... Like, especially because afterwards he's just there choking on it. Like, he doesn't just think, oh, I should just stand up and <laughs> go from there. He just, like, he's just on the butt like, ah, no. Yeah, not not the smartest, I'd say. I think it's just... The, the problem for me is that it's meant to be a really cool, slick move, and it does, doesn't come across like that because it just looks a bit stupid. It does look stupid, yeah. And the, the way the guy sounds is really stupid as well. Yeah, Cheaper so that doesn't quite work. But someone else from behind a curtain nearby says, uh, Valentin will be more than delighted to see you. So Bond goes over, steps behind this back area. And I think he points the gun at this guy who I called Gold Teeth in all my notes. Because <laughs> he has Gold Teeth, obviously. Oh, it's Goldie is, is the name of the guy that plays him. Oh, yeah. Goldie, yeah. Goldie, yeah. I was going to ask you about that because, again, I recognise this guy and I remember how I think this film was pretty heavily criticised at the time for having someone like him. Oh, he's awful. In yeah. it, where I think he was just famous at the time. Yeah. So they just shoved him in and now he's just like an absolute nobody. And also, I guess he, look, he already had gold teeth. So they saved a bit of money there despite their huge budget. Just use the gold teeth as his thing. Yeah, so I think this ties into, not to talk too much about Goldie, I think this ties into something I was reading about this film where they did a big uh, marketing push with MTV Mm, where they were concerned that younger people were not getting into Bond, that Bond was lame, yo, it wasn't hip to like Bond. So they then teamed up with MTV to kind of make a big push to appeal to younger people to kind of broaden that. Um, And I have a feeling maybe putting Goldie... (laughs) the film who i'm reading is a yeah i think he's just a, a music producer dj and also a graffiti artist so that yeah that makes sense it does make sense it's obviously not like, like jungle drum and bass beat break hardcore <laughs> i wouldn't say it's a good idea but or maybe it worked i don't know yeah i was it, interested but not because of goldie <laughs> no it's yeah, it's very much, it's a, it's a bit sad, all of it. But I guess nowadays, like most people probably just don't know who he is. So I guess it doesn't matter that much. Mm. Um, but he is a very distinct looking dude in this oh, film. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, so old Goldie, he, I don't think his character is called Goldie, but we'll call him Goldie. Uh, so yeah, Bond points a gun at him. And, and then, I'm, yeah, I think he does that. But I can't really think why he would. But we see Sikorsky is there in the room at the desk and he's got two women and he's chatting up the woman and Bond saying like, we need to talk. And he's like, chill out, James. It's all good. Don't worry about it. 
Uh, but Bond's like, no, we need to talk. So eventually Sikorsky sends the women away and Goldie gives them some money for their troubles. And it seems very chipper, Sikorsky. Last time when they met, he was very like, ah, 007, you're, you're not the best. But now he's like very chipper, very almost friendly. And well, he's like, he... I'm a legit businessman now. Yeah. I, I run this casino. <laughs> He's 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 definitely he's got a bit more money now. He's a bit more uh, yeah legit as he said. Why wouldn't he be happy? He's got a goatee. Yeah, feeling more confident to grow Everything. a goatee. <laughs> yeah, I think he was just building to be Hagrid, right? So in the last film he was clean shaven. <laughs> this one the goatee. So next time full beard with Hagrid. Oh, that would have been good if only he didn't. Well, yeah, mm, sad times. <laughs> so yeah, so. Yeah, so Bond, out of his pocket, gets part of the parachute that he got from, and this is when he says Powerhawk with a straight face. And I yes. think it's the first time you hear it. It's like, I got this logo from the parachute of a Powerhawk. So Koshi's like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> so, Trying to hold back a laugh, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, so Bond is saying that Renard is... So yeah, on the parachute, he got a logo, and they're saying that Renard is behind this. He was behind the attack. So Sikorsky then says, well, we should probably go and have a drink. So we cut to them kind of talking about Renard. Valentin kind of gives some background on Renard and talking about how he was cut from the KGB after something in Afghan or something like that. Again, it's another ex-KGB guy. It's like, oh. it's like they really couldn't get away from it. No, the KGB. they really couldn't. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's that many details really given. Um, at this point, they see on the camera that Electra enters the casino, and Bond approaches Electra and says, "You should go. I'll take you home." And she talks about not being scared; she's not afraid, so that's kind of why she's here. So Valentine like greets her and is all friendly and saying, "Oh, your father, Robert King, he had a, a line, a credit line to this casino, and I think he said like there was a million dollars. So as a respectable man, now I will honor that." So escorts them to a private room at the back and she's saying that she wants to play one card draw for the million dollars, which is just, she's going to get a card, he's going to get a card, whoever has the highest card wins. So Bond straight away says, bury the top three cards. So they look around a bit nervously and then they take the top three cards and put them at the bottom of the pile and then she's still saying like there's no point in living if you can't feel alive which is her like explanation to why she's doing all this and betting so much money on such a simple game so Electra pulls out a card or draws a card shows Bond that card it's the Queen of Hearts and then Sikorsky gets his card and he shows it and it's the Ace of Clubs so he's like thank you very much takes the money because there is like a piece of paper that has the money on there and yeah they leave and then Bond is I I think uses the analogy saying, oh, this game you're playing is one that I can't afford to play. And hmm. yeah, I, I I mean, I really like that Sikorsky's back. I think yeah. I might like him more in this film than the last one because they kind of stick with him a little bit. But yeah, it was just really nice to see him back and seeing him be so happy as well. <laughs> it's nice to see people happy. Yeah. Is that a no? <laughs> Did you mean no when you said yeah? <laughs> no, no, no. I, well, I think he definitely... It's just like... It's a very different character in this, isn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah. Before he was... 
he was still comedic, but I think there was also still a bit of a, this is someone that Bond has dealt with in the past and he actually is still a bit dangerous. Um, whereas now is, as you say, they're very chummy with each other. And I think it's just, yeah, I, I don't, I don't dislike either one. I think that both, both work for different ways. I think it's nice that you are getting some characters come back and a little bit of consistency with, with, uh, this iteration of Bond. You know, it's not a different... Imagine if it was a different Zukovsky. <laughs> oh, not that... Yeah, we can't do that again. <laughs> no, no more of that. So it is still Robbie Coltrane. Um, I just... The only thing I don't like, and I do like how he does come back later in the film, I'm glad they didn't just have this, where they use him purely as a little bit of KGB exposition, and like, oh, what does this mean? Or where do, where do I go for this character? And then if that was all we would have saw of him, I would have been a bit upset. But at least he does come back. That's what I like about it, yeah. Like, they make him a core part of the film which starts with this, which is, for this scene, is more just like a nice throwback. But he almost feels the whole, the quarrel, like, role, right? The Karen Bay role. He is Bond's ally who gives him information and helps him out. And I think, yeah, Robbie Control and this character really fits that super well. So I don't see him so much as like, oh, that guy from Goldeneye's back. I see him as like, yeah, that guy from Goldeneye's back. But he's fitting that ally role, and I think that works really well, especially because he is just kind of a likable actor and guy. Really is, yeah. But Electra doing her thing, I don't really have much to say about it. It just ties into what I think about Electra. It's all a bit silly. I didn't really feel any tension with this at all, or feel anything with Electra. I don't think it really adds anything to a character, and just thought it was a bit nothing. So it was... I guess nice being back in a casino, but I don't have much to really say about Electra and what she's doing here. Well, I guess watching this for the first time, uh, or at least, you know, at this point in the film, you're just seeing this and thinking, oh, she's acting, she's acting very stupid, very impulsive. And, and she doesn't, she's, she's kind of a bit crazy in a way, maybe, or she's kind of, he doesn't know what she's doing. Um, Whereas later on in the film, you actually learn that this is a part of the plot and, and there was a there was something more to this. So it's it doesn't it doesn't really work in this setting first like the first time I see it because yeah, it's just it's just boring. It's it's just a card. So mm. I'm I'm not saying they have to have a whole long drawn out dramatic game of baccarat again or something, but if they're gonna have this scene which is really properly explained, albeit very quickly later on then it, it kind of just leaves this feeling a bit empty. Yeah, so I, I think, think they kind is... of retroactively made it work, whereas when you're actually watching it, it doesn't. Yeah, I think this makes me think of Goldeneye, how Goldeneye was very good at making things like dual purpose, where it would be like a cool scene in itself, but it's also setting up something later. The world is not enough like attempts that, but instead of being... Like, on paper, it's dual purpose, but it always fails one of them. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's it. It gets too bogged down in the plot where it doesn't really have stuff kind of stand out and be cool by itself. So you get these very segmented, here's the cool ski scene, and here's the casino scene, but there's nothing really all that good about it. But it kind of has to be here for the plot. So it just doesn't work. It just doesn't quite come together. And I've just realized we haven't really talked about the the X-ray specs. (laughs) that much uh, i don't know if we should really because they're a bit bit bad i just wish they weren't purple is my main thing is that the problem yeah it, that's the main problem i have with them bond just looks bad with them on bond can look bad i suppose at times there's numerous points in this film where he doesn't look great <laughs> just in terms of facial expressions as well and he's already been like soaked in the pre-tart sequence but 
Yeah, just make them. Why do they have to be purple? Was that that fashion then? Trying to be it's like Anastasia. Because Q looks good in purple, and they knew right. he was going to wear them. But Bond just copies everything Q does yeah, as a role yeah. model. Yeah, I mean, yeah, okay, all right, I'll, I'll accept that then. I, I won't go too much into these extra specs, but to me, this ties into like this reminds me of when Roger Moore was zooming in on that woman's <laughs> chest in was it Octopussy that happened? Yeah, that was the one. Yeah, it's the same thing. Like that's just straight up pervert Bond and that stuff. There's a line that they have to toe with Bond of being a, a ladies' man and charming and into women and stuff and just straight up being a creep. And this one is like, yeah, this is more Roger Moore zooming into the chest being a big old creep than it is like kind of charming and funny. So it doesn't get me annoyed or anything, but yeah, not very good. Yeah, agreed. And with that, you have reached the end of part one of episode 19 of the Bond Revisited podcast. Join myself and Joe next time where Bond nearly gets blown up in the oil pipeline, nearly gets sawed in half, before nearly getting his neck broken when being tortured. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you for part two. 